Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Kyle, do you think, how many people do you think skip right over the intro? I don't think anybody skips over it. I think it's so cool, and Steve does such a good job <laughs> that people are uh, going to listen to the whole thing. So, because we have to listen to it before we start talking, I, I get to thinking, this thing's so long. Why is it so long? It, sh- yeah. it shouldn't be so goddamn long. Um, but when I listen to the podcast, I skip <laughs> I skip right past it. Do you? Yep. It yeah. takes, takes three touches of the fa- of the fast forward, or the forward fast button, as Kyle would say. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know. So I guess sometimes I skip it. Sometimes I don't. Depends. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it. I like I said. I think. I think it's fine craftsmanship. So I do listen to it. <laughs> so we were just sitting here talking um, because, like most weeks, Kyle and I haven't seen each other all week until now, and then uh, we're catching up. And he asked me how I'm doing, and I told him that doing this podcast because this is the first thing that pops in my head when you ask the question, "How am I doing?" that doing the podcast is, is improving the answer to that question. That's awesome. I just feel like I'm doing something for myself and I'm getting stuff off my chest. And uh, Anyway, it's just, it's just I'm a little bit happier since we started doing this. That creative outlet is important, man. Creative outlet, plus get to hang out with you. Yep, absolutely. Lots of, there's lots of good stuff about it. I mean, it's definitely been a... I don't know. I'm going to say this. I don't know if I'm using... It's been a boon to my life as well, you know? It's been yeah. nothing but good things. Well, I don't know if it's been nothing but good things, only because uh, preparing for these episodes... It can it, be a little stressful. Yeah, it is stressful, because there's a time, you know, cl- clock ticking, and uh, it's just not easy, just, yeah. like, just like we talk about. Do the hard thing, so that's what we got to do. I, uh, it's good. I think it's good stress, though, you know, because... Yes. On some level... Have you noticed that, the, the difference when you're, like, dredging at work, doing something challenging that you that you have no interest in mm-hmm. how tedious and terrible it is you could be doing something twice as tedious but if it's something you enjoy it's just no a completely deal. different experience yeah it's rewarding for sure the last solo episode i did i kind of you know was procrastinating and i had to do a lot of work the night before the episode <laughs> and i was up working till like 3 30 in the morning oh shit yeah and I didn't mind at all. It was like, it was cool. It yeah. was, it was fun. Yeah. I do that, man. I'm just squeezing time out of the day. I'm just, you know, to prepare for these and do them. Uh, so even though it's a lot of work and I'm already busy, I just love doing it, man. Yep. So we're going to keep, keep doing it. Awesome. On onward to the next episode. Onward and upward. Today's Excelsior. episode, today's episode we're going to do on a book called the sacred mushroom and the cross. Anybody, anybody heard of that? I've heard of that. No, where have I heard of that? Where did you hear about it? Joe Rogan. Joe. It's funny you should ask. Where do I hear about everything? Joseph, Joe Rogan. Joseph W. Rogan. 
I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what his middle name more. is. Uh, but okay, so so definitely um, definitely heard about it myself from Joe Rogan as well. I think it was probably um, Dennis McKenna uh, talking about Terrence's uh, theory, the stoned ape theory. Maybe. I think that's probably what it was. So you know, there's a lot of wheelhouse areas where Joe Rogan could it could have come up. Yeah, it could have come up. Yeah. But let me ask you this now. Obviously, I we. I was able to get a hold of the book and quotes from the book, and you've seen those. But put all that stuff aside. What did you know about this book before we we started doing this research? So I knew that it was written by a fella named John Marco Allegro, which is a cool name. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's got some some cool name points. Not going not on. as cool without the middle name though. Marco, yeah. Marco John Allegro is kind of yeah. basic bitch. John Allegro. Um, so yeah, uh, I knew that I knew that John Marco Allegro was a guy who worked on translating the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm, yep. So that's pretty sweet. Um, and th- I mean, so I, mean, I knew more about it, but as far as like the background, that's what I knew about yeah, it. Yeah, that's basically it. That's basically yeah. what I knew. Um, and so the, the thing you brought up about the Dead Sea Scrolls is important because the theory we're going to talk about is it. You might you might call it out there. And there's a lot of a lot of people that disagree with him, not only Christians but like academic people. But the reason that this is a story at all, the reason that we're talking about it now, and it was written in 1970, is because John Marco Allegro was a legit scientist. You know, and not 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 legit is not doesn't give it enough. When when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was the biggest archaeological dis- discovery of all time, perhaps. Comparable maybe only to like King Tut's tomb getting, getting opened and realizing it hadn't been robbed and it was perfect. Yeah. Uh, it's probably one of the top three um, of all time most important archaeological discoveries. And John Marco Allegro was the, one of the guys in an elite team of people that were translating these ancient documents, that were able to handle these crumbling ancient papyri and documents and, and and all that stuff he was he was saying he was a legit a legit linguist and scientist is putting it lightly he was one of the elite picked to work this super important job it one of the most important discoveries of all time translating translating I mean, some some all, uh, yeah that that's cool as hell i mean he is he's like uh he's like indiana jones almost you know kind of but you got somebody like that who says crazy shit then people have to pay attention because yeah, exactly. he's because he's somebody like that. He's not just a he's not you know as smart as Terrence McKenna was. He's not just a Terrence McKenna, yeah. you know. So yep. anyway, yeah. So I knew I knew those things about him. I knew that he was uh, that he worked on the Dead Sea Scrolls and that he came up with this th- crazy theory that it tied Christianity to psychedelics. That's what I knew basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a really hard time finding the book. Yeah, I, I think uh, somebody reprinted it not too long ago, but I think that was the first time it had been printed in like a long, long time. Yep. I mean, it's like a, I think it's one of those banned book type things, mm. right? you know, like they don't want it to be printed. People yep. are like offended by it. Right. So. Well, spo- um, spoiler alert, the the book is about, like I, like I said, um, making the argument that if you know the language of the Bible and of the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you know the language um, and its history, that what you find is that all of the language used in the in the early Christian world 
was code. And all of the code was that uh, this Jesus Christ person wasn't a historical character at all, wasn't a person, but just an allusion to a psychedelic mushroom. So that's the spoiler alert, getting right to the right to the juice. This is the story and why you can imagine why it's controversial. Since we got to to the juice, as you just called it, mm. um, what, what do you think about that? Because I think that you have, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry. Uh, you have an opinion on whether or not Jesus was a historical person, I think. And I think I know what you think about that. Yeah, yeah. So. Boy, I mean, um, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't have a firm answer to that question, the historical nature of Jesus, for lots of reasons. But I think that there was a historical, I, I, be, I believe that there was a historical person that the stories about Jesus are based on. Sure. But I also believe that those stories are not only based on this person named Jesus, but they were, they've been told and retold for, for, you know, eons. Gotcha. That makes perfect sense to me. Now, now I can believe that Jesus was a real person, really had a following in first century, you know, uh, uh, AD uh, Palestine or, or whatever. That he that he was a religious character, that he had a following, that he was killed by the Romans. I can believe all of that stuff, and also believe that the religion that sp- sprouted up around him, and maybe even before his time, because there's a lot of a lot of interesting things going on in religion during that time. Um, that 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 could also be tied to a psychedelic uh, cult of some kind. I mean, it doesn't seem out far out stretched for me. Absolutely. But there's so many people, and uh, I would have put your mom in this in this category. Uh, but of course, today I can't I can't say that at all. Uh, but there are a lot of people that would say j- just the idea that psychedelic mushrooms or any kind of illicit drugs um, could have a religious or spiritual power and that people would use them in a christian context you know god forbid yeah that that that's blasphemous and satanic and terrible and whatever um and i think that those people those people have only existed for the last few hundred years yeah yeah that prior to that everybody knew it was common knowledge that there were chemicals that were available that mother nature provided that gave you a glimpse at god people knew that from the beginning of civilization yeah which we're going to talk about today yeah, yeah. Um, I think that you're right that my mom would have been in that category. I don't think she is anymore, though. I think she, her views may have changed. Now, I think if you told her Jesus was a mushroom, she would maybe be a little offended. So She might be bothered by that. Yeah, and I get it, and I get it. And there, There's going to be a couple of things that we're going to read today from this book that I would be very interested to hear what your mom thinks about. Yeah. And we'll get to it, but, but things about, like, uh, the Eucharist, and when Jesus said, um, you know, eat this, this is my flesh, that that's a word we use when we talk about mushrooms, flesh, the flesh of a mushroom. Yeah. Anyway, we'll talk more about it, but there's just some interesting things that we'll talk about today. One thing I think is interesting about all of this is how it all kind of is based on language mm-hmm. and etymology mm-hmm. and, and the interpretation of things. Right. Uh, you know, I, I love that. So, I love that kind of stuff. So people like Dennis McKenna mm-hmm. and um, J- uh, Jordan Peterson actually talked about this. And um, Joe. Who is Jordan Peterson? <laughs> <laughs> fuck you, fuck off. So those, so those people who have all talked about this have said, I read the book. It was obviously a, a serious academic book. You know, there was it was... It, you know, it had all the footnotes. It had all the sources. It was written by an expert in the field. 
and he, he uses all these references to the breaking down the language and their and their history. That this is clearly a serious work, and then and then you know a- acknowledging that I can make heads nor tails of it. And even someone like Jordan Peterson said, I, I, you know, I can tell he's this is serious, but I have no idea. I can't evaluate the truth of any of this because I'm not a language expert. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was a challenge, by the way, is trying to because when when these people said. All of the evidence that John Marco Allegro brings to the table that says Jesus was a mushroom has to do with the words and, and the origin of the words and, and un, unraveling the code. Now, that may seem, that may seem hippy-dippy on the, on the surface, um, like why is there a code involved at all? But I, I, don't have to even, I don't even have to go very far at all to say, look, if you're a Christian, you have to, you have to recognize that Jesus spoke in parables. Jesus spoke Jesus spoke in code even to his followers. Mm-hmm. So if Jesus himself spoke in code and parables so that so that it took a little thinking it was necessary to put a little thinking into understanding what he was saying mm-hmm. that that was all intentional on purpose. So if if Jesus himself in the gospel speaks in code, why is it not possible that the early Christian church had more of that? Why why is that not a possibility? Yeah. I mean and that just seems like a a common tactic. I'm sure that that tactic has been used a lot throughout human history, speaking in code when you're trying to you know hide something. So uh, oh yeah, you know it, it's not unlikely at all. I think it's extremely likely. Do Do you remember hearing? I'm sure you have, but do you remember hearing that the the fish, the symbol of the fish, being uh, associated with Christianity early on? Like, what's that about? How did a fish ever get associated with, with Christianity? No, that's a good question. Well, I, I'll, I'll, I just kind of assumed it was about the loaves and the fishes, but I don't know. Not, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. this, And it maybe it, may it's tied to that, but this is what it was. In first century uh, Roman territory, if you were a Christian, you were a criminal. And you couldn't... You, people would worship in, like, people's basements, people's houses and stuff in, in secret because it was illegal to be a Christian. And they were persecuted and killed for the first stretch of, of uh, you know, the, 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 the new century. So if a Christian went up to a person and wanted to know if they were a Christian, like suppose I'm doing business with you in the market, I would take my foot, the toes of my foot, and I would make a semicircle in front of me. Just a re- weird thing to do, right? Just a weird thing to do. But if you were a Christian, you would take your toe, you would connect it to the, my semicircle, and you would make an overlapping semicircle, and that's that shape of the fish. fish okay. So that was another code that was used to tell another Christian that you believe what they believed. Cool as hell. There were lots of codes. Is my point. Yeah. So people that write that off as conspiracy theories, you you know, you, you haven't you haven't done your research. Tell you what, man, that the notion of it being illegal to be a Christian and Christians deciding that they don't care they have faith they're going to they're going to be christian still in in the face of that and having codes and shit is very cool it is cool that's cool as hell man i mean it's 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 lame in the sense that any any religious story any christian story in the west is kind of labeled as lame anyway because it's like hey we've been telling this story for a thousand two thousand years you know we all get it we all understand it and you know we're increasingly (coughs) increasingly secular and don't believe anything anything supernatural anymore so we we write off those stories but um there's some interesting stuff we're going to talk about today man cool man code the point is that there is some serious um stuff to do with codes and we can't write that off 
Um, apart from what, what, so I wrote in the intro that I wanted to talk about Terrence McKenna, which we did a little bit, but I want to do more. And then Paul Stamets. Um, any thoughts from you on either of those two fellas? Um, as far as Terrence McKenna goes, I've listened to some Terrence McKenna before. Um, he's definitely, he says interesting stuff. A lot of it, I, I almost feel like he's um, like a psychedelic Alex Jones. And I feel like some people might take that as an insult, but I, I, I think Alex Jones is pretty entertaining. Um, now, I, I think that he's more of a scientist than Alex Jones was, but yeah. he wasn't really a scientist, no. though. So, I mean... No, I, I think Terrence McKenna, what, he had a way of talking that mm-hmm. was entertaining, and that's what Alex Jones does. He absolutely has a way of talking that's entertaining. That I agree with. And they're both very smart. I yeah. agree with that. But Terrence McKenna seems like he had an IQ like of 150 or better. He seemed yeah. like a genius. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, he, he, I don't think he had any formal training in science, but he knew genus species. He knew, yeah. you know, like, like down to the nitty-gritty details, like by memorization. He knew that shit deep, yep. like a scientist. Yeah, that's the impression I get from him, too, is that even though he may not have the credentials, he's obviously a very, A, just, you know, he's got the, the raw computing power of, like, a person who's very intelligent. Right. And also, he's taken the time to actually learn a bunch of shit, oh, yeah. too. So, so yeah. if anybody's interested, you can go and get, there's all sorts of YouTube videos of Terrence, but a lot, most of those videos are from the 80s, so the quality's not great. Yeah. But they're really interesting to listen to. The reason I bring up Terrence in the conversation about the sacred mushroom and the cross is because Terrence McKenna talked a lot about psychedelics and their connection to religion. Mm-hmm. And in particular, his theory, the stoned ape theory. Um, do you want to give a summary of that? Because I'm just going to be regurgitating Rogan if I do it. I mean, I, I mean that, that's what I'm going to do too, but I'll do it. Yeah. So uh, the theory, the stoned ape theory, is that, you know, anatomical humans, uh, us physically, the way we are now, we've been around for a long time, you know? Right. Uh, but starting to act the like, way... Like a million years, I think. Yeah, I think maybe even more than that, but uh, a long time, yep. years and years and years. Um, uh, so, but humans acting the way that we do, thinking the way that we do, uh, behaving the way that we do, that started like 200,000 years ago, somewhere in yep. that area, give or take uh, another 100,000 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and the theory for why that happened is... We started moving, you know, at first we were like mountain dwelling, you know, kind of tree, tree dwelling primates. Yeah. Yeah. Hairless monkeys. Uh, And eventually we started, you know, due to maybe lack of food or something, we started migrating down into the valleys where mushrooms were growing, uh, you know, on cow patties or whatever. And uh, that mushroom development through whatever means caused us to turn from that thing we had been for a long, long time into what we are now. Exactly. Stone ape theory. So the only thing I can add to that is, the only details that I can add to that are that the idea is that when human beings were evolving, that the climate change, uh, so that's our best best guess. That's what pushed us out. Climate change uh, caused a decrease in the forest. And you can imagine human beings came from Africa, and the whole north of Africa is a giant desert. It wasn't always that way. So you can imagine a time when maybe that was lush and yeah. uh, the Nile goes right through that motherfucker. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, eventually the trees started to go away and it left that, the plains, you know, the, the more of the, the savanna uh, type of environment. So then 
so then these hominids, these pre-human primates, were coming down from the trees and, you know, exploring this new environment that they never had access to before. And, and we're omnivores. We eat everything. Yeah. So, and, we're, and we're curious. Mm-hmm. So when we found those mushrooms growing around, like you said, probably on the, the cow shit or the, um, <laughs> you know, all those, uh, those large, um, what do they call those types of animals? Um, I don't know. Well, they, whatever they call those types of animals that graze and their shit helps for, refertilize the, uh, the yeah. anyway, like, bu- like buffalo and, yeah, yeah. and those sorts of things. Um, so so that, that that's kind of what introduced that and that some of those mushrooms that we happened to pick up and try blew our minds, blew the tops off of our heads. Yeah. Uh, and that, um, and that it, it just happened to be, when you look at the timeline of, of like the evolution of human beings, the time when humans came from living in the trees to living more on the, on the savannas, that's when our brains happened to take off like gangbusters and get more and more complex. So it's speculative, but that's where the theory hinges. Why is it that human beings' brains development exploded then? Mm-hmm. And why then? And Terrence says, because that's when we came out and, and started eating mushrooms. You know that psychedelic mushrooms does, does things to your, your brain, creative things primarily. And that who, who knows the impact that that would have on the development of the brain and what your what your how your genes are changing because you're using this new chemical oh, and yeah. what you're passing on to your kids. Yep. So that's the idea that we ate psych- psychedelic mushrooms. Our our brain had all this new stuff going on, and all of that, whatever that magic is that we don't quite know yet, caused our our brains to develop to the to the way that they are today. You done mushrooms a few times, right? I plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot, I cannot confirm nor deny those allegations. Um, but why do you ask? Um, one thing that I have noticed about mushrooms and that would help um, push a, a species, you know, onto success is that it uh, sometimes they make you a little, a little randy, baby. Yeah, that's a good point. I yeah. have noticed that. Yeah. And these theoretical times and the, the, during these hypothetical occurrences that, <laughs> that, uh, that, yeah, that there is, there, there, there is a connection and I, and this, and I don't know, you know, I haven't done enough thorough, you know, research to kind of specify, but there is a connection between a certain type of psychedelic experience at a certain dosage or whatever it is that is definitely corresponds to, uh, increased sexual drive. And maybe it was those pre-human, you know, hominids that were eating mushrooms and banging, those are the ones that outproduced the ones that were the buttoned up, uh, you know. <laughs> the more skeptical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm not eating that mushroom. Not Whatever, dude, mushrooms. I'm going to bang your wife. And I, <laughs> you're going to raise my kids. Uh, so, so, okay, so that's good. So that's why we brought up Ter- Terrence McKenna in this context, because there's a connection between psychedelic use and religious experience, but also maybe even in uh, our our successful adaptation to the world. Yeah. And then Paul Stamets, you got anything on him? Uh, one last thing about Terrence McKenna, McKenna, I can't talk. Terrence McKenna is that uh, he's got a great voice. Yes. Like he's got a very like sweet voice to listen to. He does. It's a nerdy voice. Yeah. It is a nerdy voice. There's no there's no denying it. But it is it is got its charms. Yeah. There's something like I don't know pleasant about it. Uh, on to Paul Stamets. 
Uh, Paul Stamets has some of the best Rogan episodes. He's got. I think he's been on there twice. Yes. Both episodes are good as fuck. Hold um, on. Before you jump into Paul Stamets, just so you guys know, Terrence, I mentioned Terrence McKenna's videos being mostly from the 80s. Uh, Terrence has passed away. But you can listen to his brother, Dennis McKenna, and he's been on Rogan many times, and they talk about similar things, and that's worthwhile. Uh, Paul Stamets is alive and well. He's he's a, a more modern <coughs> more modern guy, and the episodes of Joe Rogan that Kyle's referring to, if you want to go check out Paul, is episode one zero three five and one three eight five. All right, Kyle, go. My man with the citations and shit. <laughs> um, Paul Stamets, good Rogan episodes. Cool ass mushroom hat. Yes. Um, Do you remember what he said about those mushroom hats? Um, I, I, so, so first of all, the guy is a goofy, he's a scientist and he's a, he's an important scientist and a successful scientist. He's a mycologist. He studies mushrooms and he goes on Joe Rogan wearing this hat that it looks like a felt hat, like a, like a, you know, those felt hats hipsters wear now Yeah, that look like, um, like an old Amish hat, but like girls in overalls wear them now. It's like a, it looks like a felt hat or maybe like a suede hat, but it's not, it's made of mushrooms. And what, what do you remember? He said some cool stuff about that. Do you remember? I, I know that he said the mushroom, if you like soak it in water, you can make like huge pieces of cloth. Not huge, yeah. it's not, but you know, like enough to make like a jacket or something yeah. out of mushrooms for yeah. a cloth, you know, cloth. Yeah, like so mushroom cloth. So the mushroom itself unravels into yeah. like into like thread that you can spin. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. That is very interesting. And I also remember he said that it's like highly flammable. <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, people used to use it as like a way to start fires and transfer yes. fires. You know, yeah, because yeah, it'll hold it an ember. Yeah, 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 exactly. So that's and pretty cool. He, do you remember him saying that, that there's a couple of people, because these are traditional hats, so there's a couple of people who still make them that by hand, obviously, because the way they're they're made in Transylvania. In Transylvania, yeah, that's great. And this guy has single-handedly created a business in Transylvania awesome. by buying these hats and telling people about them. And people in the states are going crazy and buy and like, yeah, dude. The orders these little old ladies in Transylvania got orders a mile long to make these hats. This motherfucker showed up on Joe Rogan's podcast in a mushroom hat and yes, turned did. that into a business. Yes. That's the power of Rogan. That's the power of Rogan. <laughs> uh, all right. So anything else? Oh, so Paul Stamets, um, I, I, I was getting ready to pass go on to the next topic here. We didn't touch on Paul Stamets at all other than Just to say what the hat. Well, the hat. Hats, yeah. So he's a so he studies mushrooms, he's a mycologist. He's he talks a lot about the benefits of of eating different kinds of mushrooms and all the people don't talk enough about them. Not just psychedelic mushrooms either. No, not, no, of course. Yeah. yeah. Chagas and uh, lion's mane. And I started drinking that coffee, that uh, four sigmatic coffee, the lion mane's mushroom coffee. Gotcha. It's good, nice. but it's supposed to help your, it's supposed to help like, you know, your brain, you know, condition your brain so you don't get dementia and you know, cra- Damn, crazy really? stuff. I'm going to look into that. Yeah. So mushrooms. Um, anyway, so Paul, Paul Stamets has a character named after him on star Trek. Um, on the on the new Star Trek series, okay, um, and uh, so he he's like a pop, he, to some degree he's like a pop culture scientist. He, you know, he's I guess if you know anybody that studies mushrooms, it's Paul Stamets, kind okay. of thing. And he tells some very interesting stories on the Rogan podcast. Yeah, he does things that you would definitely border on um, supernatural or religious. Would you Would you agree with that? Yeah, I don't really remember the story specifically, but I do remember some crazy stuff. 
I don't want to spoil this um, <coughs> because if anybody actually finds this topic interesting enough and they want to go listen to that that episode again, either uh, one zero three five or thirteen eighty five. I think it's the first one, one zero three five, where he tells a story about growing up, um, his brother g- going off to college and um, bringing home a book about mushrooms and this adventure he has um, <coughs> with his book and and. Eventually, because of that book, he finds psychedelic mushrooms, has an experience, and then he basically f- sees the future. He basically has this weird occurrence where he, where he he can't explain it. And again, he's just like a serious, respected scientist, and he's and he's telling Joe about this crazy thing that he can't explain. Where because of something to do with mushrooms, he feels like he legitimately had a had a predilection of the future. Okay. I do vaguely remember that now that you t- that you re- recollected a little bit, um, but yeah, I, I do. Re- I just remember that the stories were crazy. Yeah. So those are my uh, suggestions about if you like this stuff about psychedelics, specifically mushrooms and religion, that we're going to talk about John Marco Allegro today. But Terrence McKenna and Paul Stamets are also great avenues to explore for further reading. All right. All right. So. I told you when we started this that I had a hard time finding the book. Yeah. Uh, and you suggested that, you know, it was maybe re republished, but, but prior to that, maybe it was hard to get a hold of. And this is one of those books that um, you can imagine it was published in 1970. Christianity and religion was still a much bigger part of the culture. Uh, people would not have been happy about this, and they weren't. And that's the reason why the book was buried. And, e- and the reason why a respected scientist could say something so interesting and nobody took it took it seriously because they it was because it was how dare he yeah that kind of a reaction clutching so, those pearls clutching them pearls so i had trouble finding the book i my first step was to find it on audio mm-hmm. i thought i'll just go get it on audio and listen to it no yeah nobody's done that and um so i found an article about it and i read it it's called psychedelic origin of christianity it was published in april of 2013 and i thought that was going to be the best i was going to be able to do um, so the first part of my notes are about this article. You can see that. And the guy the guy that wrote the article is Sam Wolf with two O's. So it's uh, whatever, Sam W-O-O-L-F-E. But anyway, if you want to find the article. So that's the first bit. And then I actually found this. I found this website here. Um, boy, C-O-C-H-A-B-A-M-B-A-H-O-T-E-L um, dot noblogs.org so anyway this is just a blog but somebody had actually scanned in pages of uh, the book (coughs) so I had a big chunk of the book that I could actually go through and read which was nice because that's where I ended up getting a bunch of the quotes from from the actual from the actual book so we'll talk about that as well but if it wasn't for that if it wasn't for that um, kind person who decided it was worthwhile to scan the book in I would have had no I would have had no access to the book. I would have had to have bought it and waited <coughs> waited for it to get shipped here and read it uh, before we could have done this. So thank you to whatever kind human being did that. Um, it is there uh, on, on the Internet if you want to read it. Um, do you want me to jump right in, or you got anything you want to say to open it up? No, you're good. All right. Kyle, man. Sorry. Um, coughing too too much for this. <coughs> you, you some bitch. All right, so this article, The Psychedelic Origin of Christianity, kind of cuts right to the heart of the book sacred mushroom and the cross because you could just call it psychedelic origins of christianity that's basically the title of the book um and he said he's the guy that wrote this article was talking about the book 
he, he says, you know, hey, this is a, a British archaeologist who wrote it, uh, that that he spent basically hit the entire part of his career in the beginning studying the earliest manuscripts of the Bible, including the, the Dead Sea Scrolls when they were uh, when they were uh, discovered. And he, he explains it. He, he says, the basic idea behind the book is that primitive religions were based on fertility rites. Um, what comes to mind when you when we say that, fertility rites? Um, I don't know. I think of like... Uh, I think of like pre-Christian religions in like Europe and stuff like that. Yep. Like Nordic kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, sure. You know, like where... The, the kind of stuff that when it got kind of folded into Christianity became like the Easter bunny and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my mind goes to things like, um, <coughs> things like rain dances, things like sac- animal sacrifices or human sacrifices mm-hmm. to, 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 you know, bring about, um, you know, the rain or something yep. like, like you can imagine the Mayans or something like that. Um, so the, those sorts of things, um, and it's important. We're, we're going to talk about a lot about this fertility rights business. So the idea here is that there's that there's a connection in uh, ancient people's minds between um, the plants that are growing and bearing fruit and animals and human beings that are having sex and giving birth. Mm-hmm. That that having a baby is something like the the harvest, and it's it's connected to the creation of everything and maybe even the creation of the cosmos. So fertility rights, it, people say that it's like a dry word, fertility rights. And you think about the, all these different gods in the, in the pagan religions that were worshiped like, um, you know, the gods of the harvest and, you know, uh, you think of Bacchus and Dionysus and, you know, uh, Demeter, you know, whatever, but all these different, um, gods and goddesses that were connected to that. But it, it's not just about crops and it's not just about, you know, continuing the species. Um, it's about recognizing that there's this power that that you can see all around you, um, this power of creation and birth that's happening all around us um, that uh, that's connected somehow to the creation of everything, the cosmos. So it's a deep, deep religious idea that uh, fertility is involved with this. It's not it's not. It's uh, the, the I'm taking pains to explain how important this idea of religious uh, of fertility rights are in in religion, um, and so I don't want us to just write this off as a you know a silly thing that savage people did because they didn't understand what, what made what made the rain work. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. All right. So he says the basic idea behind the book is that primitive religions were based on fertility rights. Allegro believed that fertility cults like this used the hallucinogenic mushroom Amanita muscaria, or fly agaric. This is the red mushroom with the white spots. Um, Kyle, references to references to the Amanita muscaria in pop culture. What do you got? Mario. Mario! Yeah, yeah the, the, the mushroom in Mario that makes you bigger? Yes, that's that's the Amanita muscaria. Anything else? Um, you just see it in, like, fairy tales. and I mean, it's honestly all over the place, and it's because, part of it is because it's a visually pleasing mushroom it, it looks great right you know yep. so you do see it a lot you see I, like i see it on um i have some amanita muscaria christmas ornaments for my christmas tree <laughs> nice. I, I found i mean you find it at like common stores yep uh, you see them on postcards uh you know gift cards stuff like that all have, the time have you heard the connection between um amanita muscaria and santa claus yeah so I can't remember if that's in here. So if it is, I, I apologize. I but I don't think it was. But 
but there, yeah, there's there's a connection there that Santa Claus wears uh, the red clothes with the white, you know, accents, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what the Amelina Muscaria looks like. And uh, it's also tied to those pagan religions from Northern Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also tied to their kind of more ancient religious rites. Yeah. So what what has come down to us as Santa Claus is something tied to that Yule tradition from the pagan tribes in the Northern Europe. It's it's much deeper and more significant than a guy that brings presents. But those that that connection was made, and the fact that that connection was made, and when you think of Christianity, the only the only character more tied to Christianity than Jesus. It's motherfucking Santa Claus. Santa Claus even, is in there. Even, even I, I don't know if this is fair or not, but I would say that Santa Claus is a more recognizable Christian character, Christian character, than Doubting Thomas or Moses. Sure. Now, I realize Moses is somebody that's tied more to Ju- Judaism, but if I was talking to somebody who's a Christian off the street and asking you, you know, of these of these list of names, tell me the top two or three that, that you connect to Christianity, and Santa Claus is on that list, I guarantee you Jesus and Santa Claus are number one and number two. Probably. All right. So there's a connection there, and that's kind of interesting because that's what this book, the rest of this argument is going to be made about Jesus. Okay, he says... Um, he also said that these mushrooms are at the root of many religions, including early Christianity. So this is not limited to Christianity. Yeah. Christianity was essentially the product of a sex and mushroom cult. And the mushroom was seen as the gateway to understanding God. Okay, so you can imagine if somebody says that statement, that Christianity was originally a sex and mushroom cult. Not a lot of Christians not a single one of the conservative ones are gonna are going to love that idea. Yeah, it's sex blasphemy. and mushroom cult. All right. Um, you know what I think is one thing I think is interesting is I've never done Amanita muscaria, um, but the people that I have listened to talk about it who have make it seem like it's not a particularly strong or effective mushroom. Mm. You know, like it's hard to have a good experience on it. It's interesting. So, I, and I wonder if that good means like in, in the in the sense of having a good trip versus a bad trip, mm-hmm. like a good experience meaning a psychologically pleasing one, or 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 you're saying to achieve a visual state. It's that's difficult. what I. That's the impression that I got. Okay. That um, it's not easy to have a psychedelic experience. Like uh, I think I think I listened to Hamilton Morris talk about it. Oh yeah. He said he just got like kind of sick feeling and uh-huh. that nothing really. So that's you know. it. That's interesting. And that's actually if that's true, if Amnina muscaria is not easy to have a, a powerfully visual experience on, that's a strike against John Allegro's theory because he focuses so much on this particular mushroom, and yeah. I, I'm not sure why that that's the case. But there's also ways of preparing drugs mm-hmm. to concentrate them, especially yeah. in a religious uh, environment. Yeah. It's, it would be hard for me to rule it out entirely. You know, like it's possible they could have had a brew sure. that made this way more powerful. For sure. And one thing I think that uh, helps uh, substantiate that theory is that uh, there are a couple ways that I've heard of people doing Amanita muscaria. Most of the time it's not just that you like cut it up and eat it. Yep. Um, one thing that I've seen people do is like peel off the red skin from the cap, mm. roll that up, and smoke it. Ooh. Um, and then I've also seen people. Um, that sometimes they make tea out of it. Mm. Uh, and another thing is that supposedly when you eat it, and you've probably heard this, 
you eat it and then you pee it out, it's like a lot stronger it, it, if you oh, were to drink your own pee. Yes. I think I heard that on Hamilton, Hamilton Morris as well. Yeah. But yeah, that there there is a tradition, and I, may, I couldn't remember if it was Amanita or not, but there is a tradition like that where the that the drug is not as powerful, but once you've once it's gone through your body, that it it gets way more concentrated in your urine. So drinking the urine is way more yeah. powerful, and that maybe that could be the explanation for that the entire thing. And another little interesting tie-in for it is that uh, these like you know northeastern shamans, whoever they were, mm-hmm. would eat this stuff, and then they would go outside and they would pee and. Uh, reindeer were like super they like would fight each other to get to the the shaman wow so and then there's the connection of santa claus with the reindeer okay so ooh, that's good i like that so there's something important to say here which is that that's not the only example i've heard of of animals doing psychedelics Mm -hmm. and on purpose yeah so there was a video that joe mentioned that joe rogan mentioned i think it was like a a cheetah or a jaguar or some kind of a big cat in the wild that was eating psychedelic uh mushrooms or something in the wild and then you could see this white this cat laying on its back playing like it was a kitty cat with a ball of yarn in the middle of the jungle for like an extended period of time the the reason i bring that up is because if it's true that animals will seek out psychedelic drugs that's one piece of evidence uh stacking in favor of that human beings might have done that also in fact we'd be more likely to have done that because we're smarter than jaguars in the jungle um so there's that there's, there's also the idea that the system, the, the, the physiological system in the animal's body that, that is the, the receptors or what, all that stuff that it needs to get high off of the drug are already there in animals, you know, different enough from us that, yeah. we, that, that you, have to follow all, you have to follow the common ancestor between me and the jaguar and the reindeer that you were talking about to figure out how old that system is. It goes yeah. back, it goes way back. Yeah. So anyway, that's really interesting. That is very interesting. All right, so then the last sentence here um, that I haven't finished this bit yet is that it says, through this understanding, it was believed that fertility would also be promoted. So there's a connection here between uh, the mushroom and fertility. It goes on to say, Allegro argued that the mushroom and its powers were a secret so that they had to be written down in the form of codes hidden in mythical stories. In his own words, quote, This is the basic origin of the stories of the New Testament. They were a literary device to spread the rites of mushroom worship to the faithful, unquote. Jesus in the gospel was code for the Amanita mushroom, according to Allegro. What do you think of that? That is blasphemy and i think john mark allegro is going to hell <laughs> if he's not already there all right so then um, go- no i mean that's cool as hell that's uh interesting theory so i, I had to see how it unfolds yep so before i had access to um before i had access to the book i was trying to compile evidence um what what was john marco's evidence what was it that he put forward to say that jesus was a, was a psychedelic mushroom like I want to know what the evidence is. And somebody give me bullet points. So I was trying to do that from this article, and this is what I this is what I came up with. And then I, when I finally had the book, I, I did it even more, and it'll be better when we get to that point. But I'll just read these, unless you want to read them. I'll read them. Yeah, read them. Okay, so Allegro draws on some interesting evidence to support his hypothesis. That in a, that uh, evidence being thirteenth uh, century. French fresco in the chapel of 
plain. Uh, oh, of course, yeah. I chose Fr- to French read this word, fucking yeah. French word. Plain carreau. Plain uh, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Uh, shows Adam and Eve next to a tree made of large Amanita muscaria mushrooms. The serpent can be seen coiling around the tree. Ooh, that's interesting. That is interesting. So. The, I, I haven't seen these. I didn't look them up. I didn't either, but they're. I did see some of them, but they weren't they weren't this one. But where my mind goes here is like on the con side, is that this, you know, again famous um, work of art that he's talking about, in a you know in a chapel uh, that people have seen, lots of people have seen going back for you know hundreds and hundreds of years. It's like you know you're not hiding it exactly. You're not if it's supposed to be secret and code. You're putting it out in the open. Doesn't seem to me like you're hiding it exactly. Yeah, that's true. The the other thing is it's from the the 13th century, so it's not ancient really compared to when Jesus lived. It's not ancient at yeah. all. Yeah. So th- those are on the con side for me. It is weird. It is it is weird. Yeah. And then like, the, what do you suppose it means that the tree in the garden was a mushroom? And, and you know, it must mean that the people who painted that in the 13th century in France, um understood that that the mushroom provides secret knowledge. Yeah. I mean, it has to. What else could it possibly mean? I don't know what else it could mean. That seems like that has to be it. So if that's the case, then, then we can suppose that somebody in 13th century French knew that mushrooms like that would cause you to trip balls. That, that doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus was a mushroom, but it's interesting. Yeah. But definitely the connection between the serpent wrapped around this mushroom and, and you know, the tree of knowledge, the the story of the tree of knowledge that you you that you pull that apple off the tree and 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 you you eat it and then as as the Bible says you become as God knowing good and evil that when that happens the the serpent is connected to the this this knowledge and that's what the mushroom seems to give you this secret knowledge if you trip hard enough balls you you experience things that are impossible and you have knowledge you have knowledge from this experience that so few people in your surroundings can can understand that you're like some kind of a you know what it reminds me of man this is an obscure reference and I'll, I'll give you there's a there's a book called uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell yeah, and I love that book. If anybody's interested, um, sorry, it's like a fairy story. It's kind of like a Harry Potter's type type book. But there's this fairy who who puts a curse on a character in that book, and the curse is that she can she every time she opens her mouth to tell anybody about her curse, she tells crazy stories instead. That this is the curse. She wants to tell people so she can so she can free herself from this curse. But every time she opens her mouth, j- gibberish comes out. Um, that oh, that was too far down the train of thought to remember where oh, that what that circles back to, but that that's whatever it was that reminded me of that story, Kyle. That was the story. <laughs> um, hmm. All right, so I'll re- I'll read the next one, I guess. All right. So the next so apart from this 13th century uh, painting that shows the tree of knowledge being a mushroom, um, the, here's the next one. Other ancient cultures used psychedelic plants in their religious rituals. So we know of a bunch of these. We know from ancient India that in the, their, you know, their, one of their major holy books, the Rig Veda, uh, there's a substance called soma that's described. It's a, some kind of a juice that the priests drink and they have visionary experiences. So soma. Soma. Now what's next, Kyle? Uh, 
This mushroom grows in cow dung, which may explain why the cow gained a sacred status in the Hindu tradition. That is interesting. Okay, so we so we go from we go from uh, the Rig Veda, which is which is uh, you know in India, but also in Iran, and now we're going into you know the heart of the most the world's most ancient religion, Hinduism, and they're saying that uh, in Hinduism, cows are in certain types of Hinduism, you might say that cows are sacred. Um, and one of the reasons they might might be considered sacred is because these these psychedelic mushrooms grow on their shit. You know that's where you find them. They sh- the, these sacred animals go around shitting out magic you know magic mushrooms. That's kind of the idea. Yeah. So of course you would see them as sacred. Yeah. All right. So the next one's talking about the blue lotus flower. So it appears in ancient Egyptian mythology and symbols, and it was actually worshipped as as a symbol. And they, we didn't know until much later on that the blue lotus has psychedelic properties. So we, you know, it may have been that they were consuming those, and there's, and that's why they feature so re- um, highly in the in the religious art. Yeah. Again, they had some kind of brew or something. Yes. Speaking of brew, read, read the next one about the Eleusinian mysteries. In the Eleusinian mysteries, a drink called Kikion. Yeah, Kikion. Kikion was consumed. Some speculate that the that the barley used in this drink was parasitized by ergot, a fungus, and that the psychoactive properties of the fungus were responsible for the intense experiences that people reported. Ergot contains ergotamine, a precursor of LSD. Mm. So this is interesting for a couple reasons. Yep. The LSD connection is interesting, first of all. It's also a mushroom, a fungus, so that's part relevant. But the Ellicinian mysteries are, are interesting because they're connected to Christianity. And people don't really know that. Yeah. So the Ele- the Eleusinian mysteries. Um, so Eleusis was a <clears throat> was a place, and I, I think it was in Greece, and uh, they had a um, priestess in a temple there, and it was like going to see the temple, at, uh, the priestess of Delphi. You would you would you would take a religious like um, what do they call that? Like the Hajj. What's it, what's it called? A pilgrimage. A pilgrimage. You would, you would take a pilgrimage to the to the temple, and um, and it was possible for you to drink the kaikion and if you did you you had religious experiences mm-hmm. and they're saying well there might have been something in the kaikion even though it was something like a fermented drink or something that, that there might have been something in there uh that was basically lsd okay really interesting but the the Eleusinian mysteries the reason they call it mysteries and they called these this group of religions back then they called them mystery religions and christianity was lumped into it mm-hmm. and i'll tell you the others that come to my mind there was um, worship of Mithra, and Mithra's uh, in Rome in the Roman Empire. Mithra was a uh, was a god that was a part of the pantheon, but I'm pretty sure it came originally from Iran. So it's like we brought in this foreign god, and um, you can you can worship the god, but you have to know somebody. You have to know somebody to get in, Got and it. we do all of our shit in secret, and nobody's allowed to talk about it. So you can think about that like. Uh, you know, like the the Masons or something. That would That's be exactly what I was fucking thinking of, man. Those goddamn secretive Masons. So, or, or like the Skull and Bones or something. Yeah. So it's something like that. But if you can get into these religions, and you, and you have to imagine that elite people wanted to do this, and it was very selective and very mysterious. And it's like you can imagine like celebrities today paying an arm and a leg to to be one of the ones who gets to do this this sure. exclusive thing. So it was one of these types types of deals. But because they were secretive and they didn't let anybody in, that made a lot of people upset. 
and they bitched to the government, and the government basically persecuted them. So you have the worship of Mithra, which involved sacrificing a, a, a cow, a, a bull, and uh, and eating the the bull, so so or drinking its blood or something. There was something like that going on, and then there was the religion that cir- cir- uh, circled around Bacchus and Dionysus, which was those were the gods in Greek in Greece and Rome that are the god of the vine. So these are basically drunken alcoholic orgies. These are the kind of stories that get told about them, but just same kind of stories that get told about skull and bones. If you don't know what's going on behind the scenes, we're just going to assume you guys are all you know doing crazy sex stuff and you know whatever. And maybe yeah. and maybe they were. Yeah. But a lot of these religions, the Eleusinian mysteries, the worship of Mithra, Dionysus and Bacchus, and Christianity, they're all lumped in together because they were all happening around the same time, and many of them were many of them were uh, talked about as uh, doing things that were uh, taboo, including eating human flesh, drinking human blood, things like that. What do we do in What do we do in the Christian Eucharist? We drink. God's blood, and we eat God's flesh. Yeah. Th- these are the stories that get told about them, yeah. and you can see why you would fit that right in. You would fit Christianity right in this group of, of religions that that do things like that and say things like that, and are and are un- underground, and not everybody's allowed to participate in them. That kind of thing. Yeah, that that makes me think back to when we were talking about how cool it was to be a Christian back then. You know, you're yeah. like rebellious. Um, and it just makes me think that the way that Christians are perceived today is completely different in the majority of the world from how it was back, you know, back then. Oh, yeah. You know, now, I mean, it, it's like boring, you know? Yeah. It's, I, the, word I, the word comes to mind for me is dead. Yeah, that's a great word and, for it. And I never really understood that. This is one of the things that having mystic experience made me more creatively minded that I started to... D- makes sense that that idea started to make sense to me that there are things like part of parts of our culture that are alive and by that i mean they're relevant to our mm-hmm. to our lives and it's that's obvious their relevance is obvious their meaning is obvious and um that they're things that we that we use and rely on and and you know uh then there are things that are dead and they're like relics that used to be alive but that that but they don't have that meaning anymore they don't have that fire anymore they don't they're not they're not a part of our culture that that matters anymore and, and, and that, that sounds harsh but it just i don't know what any other word to, to use i know what you mean i mean you know th- things ideas just whatever these things are they they start taking over and by the nature of that whatever was kind of dominant before is going to start going away. Yeah. I mean, that's just how it works. That's that's the transformation that's fundamental to reality. Mm-hmm. It, that's something that it's unavoidable. Um, the more things change, the more they stay the same. That's where that comes from. Yeah. Tr- transformation is a constant part of being. Yeah. Yeah. Fighting it is, uh, that's where you're getting into trouble. It's interesting you say that. Because... <coughs> Because that's 100% true, that mm. things are always changing, we, we are always changing, and the world around us is always changing, and there are times when that's hard, and we resist it. So it's like, you know, something as simple as, um, oh, we're changing uh, software at work, we're not using this anymore, we ha- we're using this other thing. Oh, great, now i got to learn this other thing. I already learned the first one, I'm perfectly fine with it. Now you're making me do this thing? Son of a bitch. Yeah. So there's, there's that type of, a, of an example. 
Um, and then there are like revolutionary examples, like, you know, um, the, the way your life changes if you become paralyzed or oh, something. Fuck. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't know where I was going with all that. Real me in. Um, I don't, I don't know where you were going. Either. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to read, I'm going to read this last example then that, that came from this article. So we talked about the Rig Veda talks about Soma. Soma was some crazy drug from, you know, the ancient Aryans that, that they were using. Mm-hmm. Um, then there was the mushrooms that grew on cow dung that, that might explain why the ancient Indians worshiped cows. Yeah. Uh, there's the, there's the blue Lotus in, in Egypt that we found out, you know, today is psychedelic and uh, features yeah. prominently in their symbols. The mystery religions involved the Kaikion, or even I, I mentioned before that the priestess at Delphi. Yeah. Um, one of the things that they thought might have been uh, explanation for her visions, because she would tell people the future, yeah. is that she would go into the back room uh, in the temple, and that the fissures from the ground were releasing gases from from deep in the earth that would come up, and she would breathe them in and trip. She would breathe them in and Crazy. have and have visions. So even that. And then we've got, of, co- of course, the LSD connection. The last one here is that mushroom cults, very explicitly, no hiding it, um, that, they, that they go back in Mesoamerica, so that you can think of the Aztecs and the Mayans and those people, they go back um, you know, to 1,000 BC. They go back many thousands of years where there's statues of mushrooms. I mean, you're not hiding it at that point. Yeah. I would like to have a statue of a mushroom in my yard. <laughs> that sounds... Th- I'm going to look into that. Or in your garden. Oh, yeah. So, so now... Basically, we've really only talked about two pieces of evidence here. And so this guy's article, in my opinion, gives these two pieces of evidence. One is uh, a famous painting in a medieval church in France that has the, uh, the tree of life as a mushroom. And the second one is a bunch of examples of ancient religions in the world that, had, uh, that used psych- psychedelics as part of their, part of their rituals. Yeah. And a, a group of those, these mystery religions, included Christianity. That's it. That's all the evidence that I see here so so far. So far. Is that you agree with that? Yep. Uh, and w- how do you weigh that? W- do you think that's strong evidence? Do you I, think No, I I mean that's the kind of evidence that I'm like, "Oh, that's I mean, that's pretty interesting. That's weird. It's weird that 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 tree is made out of mushrooms." It is weird. Know? Uh, but that's about as far as I I mean, and I you know what? I will even say that maybe I'll want to believe it. I'll be like, "Oh, that's pretty cool." Yeah. yeah. I want to believe that. Yep. But I'm also not going to be like staking my reputation on exactly. it. Exactly. So. I'm right I'm right there with you. I, at this point, I feel like with if this is all the evidence that John Mark Allegro brought to the table, um, I'm not. I I can't say that it's beyond the possibility of being coincidental. Yeah. It's like it, it, you know, it's not a strong argument to me. Uh, but the good news is that um, Sam Wolf, who wrote this article, he didn't do the, he didn't do a great job because there's a lot there's a lot more to talk about. Shame, Sam. For shame, Sam. <laughs> All right, so now we can get into actual um, John Marco Allegro quotes from the Sacred Mushroom, and I organized these in a way that I thought would build to the kind of the strongest evidence. The first bit is more to introduce the topic, which we probably did a pretty good job of, but um, here's a couple of quotes here. Uh, Do you want to read the first one, Kyle? Sure. Yeah. Thousands of years before Christianity, secret cults arose which worshipped the sacred mushroom, the Amanita muscaria, which for various reasons, including its shape and power as a drug, came to be regarded as a symbol of God on earth. 
Okay, that's interesting. It is interesting. So the idea of something being symbolic of God on earth is, first of all, it rings of Christianity already because God on earth is something we say about Jesus, that he's the, um, uh, what's the word, incarnation, we use that word, he's the incarnation. Um, but but we can think of things like being symbolic. That's easy for human beings to think about. The idea of imagining a mushroom as the symbol of God is it's a little unusual because it's like I I never really heard that before. But given the power of the mushroom, especially the psychedelic mushroom, um, that doesn't seem far fetched at all. So this is how we're introducing the topic. Mm-hmm. Read the next one. Uh, when the secrets of the cult had to be written down, it was done in the form of codes hidden in folk tales. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, do you remember the Maps of Meaning episode that I did uh, recently? Yes, indeed. I, I said that that the book Maps of Meaning it opens up with a with a, a quote from Matthew, and it says something, and I'm going to butcher it now. Matthew, <laughs> Matthew, it says it said something like, um, uh, "I'm going to tell you things that have been hidden from the world since the beginning of time." Um, it's a good way to start. A it book, is. Man. It is. But then, but then you see that Jesus. Every time he talks, every time he opens his mouth, he's telling a story or, or he's talking in parables. So he's not being direct about it. And even the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew says as much. It's like, hey, I'm going to tell you something important right now, but it's not going to be straightforward. You know, this is not for everybody. This is, this is for the people who are smart enough or deep enough to get what I'm saying. Got it. Something like that. And then the last one, Kyle. Uh, this is the basic origin of the stories in the New Testament. They are a literary device to spread the rites and rules of mushroom worship to the faithful. All right. So those three quotes, in my opinion, are a pretty good summary of what we're going to talk about. Yes, indeed. All right. So the mushroom is a symbol of God on earth. Um, when it came time to actually writing down the, that religion or the, the tenets of that religion, they did, they did so in code, um, which you see you know, reflected in the way Jesus talked. So you have that. And then uh, he's basically saying not only that, but the, the character of Jesus himself is really just a, a way of talking about this psychedelic mushroom. So let's see, let's see what, the, uh, what the evidence is then. Let's see it. All right. So this section... This section is going to focus some on the language because that was what everyone who talks about John Marco Allegro says that he was an expert on language. So that this is where the evidence comes from. So let's figure out what that what that might be. Yep. Um, all right, here, here he goes. So John Marco says, "Our present study has much to do with names and titles. Only when we can discover the nomenclature of the sacred fungus within and without the cult can we begin to understand its function and theology." Even gods as different as Zeus and Yahweh embody the same fundamental conception of the fertility deity, for their names in origin are precisely the same. So that's interesting. I'd never heard that before. Yeah. But he's saying if you know where the word Zeus comes from, which we did talk about yeah. being uh, being Dius Pater of the from the Aryan. Um, so if you know that if you know the root of Zeus and of Yahweh um, uh, of the Hebrew origins of the of the name Yahweh and the Greek origins of the word Zeus that those names mean the same thing so that's interesting it's something like father I guess Yahweh I mean I would like to see how that breaks down etymologically yeah you know because mm-hmm. well, like Zeus I understand completely how Zeus does I've seen that you know a, right. a bunch of times 
Yahweh, though, I, I would just be interested to see that. I'm gonna have to look into that. Yeah, again. yeah, and I didn't, and I, I don't know that he said it exactly here, but, um, but he, but we do have some examples of that, and we're gonna get to it here pretty soon. So, what's particularly interesting about that to me, and the reason I want to know, is because Zeus and you know all of the things that the versions of that that came from the same, you know, the same origin, those are all Indo-European languages. Mm -hmm. Yahweh, that would be a Semitic language. Yeah, exactly. That's a completely different language it, family. Exactly. And it's interesting. So we're, and it is interesting. And we're going to get into some of that, why that's interesting. And I've got some shit that I can say about that. Okay. Um, but I'm just thinking, we know Zeus comes from, comes from a God that meant sky father. Yeah. We know that. And Yahweh, Yahweh is, um, or Yahweh or Yahweh, we don't really know how to pronounce it because it, it wasn't actually pronounced except for by the, by the high priest in the Holy of Holies. So nobody's ever heard the name of God spoken except for the those high, guys. The, those guys. So whatever. But, it, but, it, but he's going to say that they're both t tied to these fertility re religions or the, this idea of a fertility God. So you can imagine if Zeus is the sky father and the sky is where the rain falls from. That you might you might imagine the rain falls and the plants grow. That that's a connection between the sky and fertility. So there might be yeah. something like that going on. That's interesting. But he's going to focus a lot more on when I say fertility. He's going to focus a lot more on the symbols of fertility. That that have you have you ever heard like these these old anthropologists like people who talk about the uh, like the cave paintings or whatever they uh, they focus so much on things like. Um, shapes, shapes in the statues that represent um, the pubic, the, what do they call it, the pubic V. Yeah. There's like a shape that represents the vagina. Mm -hmm. And they, they talk about this, like there's all this sexual uh, imagery in these ancient, uh, and there was in some, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that that didn't happen, yeah. but they make a really big deal about the sexual stuff. The way that Freud made a really big deal about sexual hangups and like it, it overwhelmed his entire psychology. Yeah. There's some of that that to me I think is overkill and and, and you might feel that way in a, in a second, but I'm interested to see uh, how you react. Um, all right, so I'm, uh, where do we leave off here? Their names meaning the same thing. All right, so he goes on to say, all roads in the Near East lead back to ancient Sumer. Similarly, the, the most important of the religions and mythologies of that area, and probably far beyond, are reaching back to the mushroom cult of Sumer and her successors. Here, etymology has done more than discover the root meaning of a particular word. It has opened a window on prehistoric philosophic thought. So he's, so he's saying here that we can learn a lot more when we dig into the, these meanings of the words and their roots than, it, than it, you might imagine. And then we get our first example here, and this is what I mean. Um, what do you want to do this one? Sure. The, um, the phallic form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The phallic form of the mushroom matched precisely that of Father, whom the Sumerians called Iskor, I guess. Yep. Which means my nickname in high school, Mighty Penis. Yes. The Semites, Adad, Big Father. The Greeks, Pater Zeus, and the Romans, Jupiter, Father God. To see the mushroom was to see the Father, as in Jesus, who stated, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am the Father and that the Father and the in fa me yeah. and the Father in me? Yeah, that's interesting. So, th so this bit about um, the Sumerian god 
uh, Iskor, and his name actually means mighty penis. And the and the Semites god Adad, who they're who they're saying is this is the equivalent, that his name is Big Father, and like that that has a connection somehow to this mighty penis. Big Father, mighty penis. Well, fathers are the guys that have penises, so there's this connection here, yeah. and that the Greek. Uh, uh, Zeus and the Roman Jupiter, which we already knew were connected, that they have a similar meaning, again, Father God, so that you've got big penis, then you've got big father, and then you have Father God. Yeah. And that, 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 that This is a evidence that all of these gods are basically the, the same character. And it has something to do with a big penis, which is the connection to fertility. Something like that. You know, this just popped into my head, and I've known about like this kind of stuff a little bit for a while but i've never really it's never really clicked with me that it is weird that we call it like mother nature and mm-hmm. you know father you know it I is never really thought about that but well if anybody has ever wondered that question i encourage you to listen to my maps of meaning episodes because i talk exactly about that in the first one uh well in one of the first, either the first one or the one i just did that i haven't released yet so that's coming you guys can look forward to that but what about this last bit here, man, that where he quotes the Gospel of John where he says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Now imagine imagine this. Imagine you have done magic mushrooms. Imagine. Imagine you've done lots of them and you've had a crazy religious experience. Like yeah. It's nothing you've ever had before. It's one of those, uh, one of those, what did we say in the um in the um Timothy Leary episode that the the kids who who took the LSD they said it was the one of the top three most uh, imp- important uh, moments of their lives or whatever. So imagine you have an experience like that on mushrooms, and then somebody takes one of those mushrooms and they hold it up to you and they're holding it in front of you and you're looking at it and you know what's in that mushroom. This potential for this crazy experience is in there. You're staring at it. Now, this is only going to happen in the head of somebody who's had that crazy experience. Somebody who's never done psychedelics, you're not going to understand this. But put yourself in the shoes of someone who has, and you're staring at this beautiful, succulent fruit that you know has this magic underneath it. And somebody holds this to you and says, He who has seen this has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, that that that?" that this mushroom is in Father God and that Father God is in this mushroom? Don't you believe that? So he's saying, again, this is coming from the Bible where I'm supposed to be saying, uh, putting myself in Jesus' shoes here and saying, I, don't you think Jesus is in God and God and, and God is in me is in Jesus? Don't you believe that? But, he, but, but swap out Jesus for a mushroom in this situation and say that. This is one of those things that I wondered how your mom, how your mom would, would take it is that if you put yourself in someone who's had that experience and you say, don't you believe that this is in God and God is in this, that that to me sounds, maybe makes more sense maybe than the way that the, uh, the traditional Christian interpretation. Yeah. What do you think? Um, well, I, I agree because I think that it's easiest for us to believe something based on our own experiences of things. And I think that people can take mushrooms and have that experience, yep. you know, and this thing about Jesus being God and God being Jesus, it's like harder to, you know, I can take this mushroom and be like, Oh, you know, like I see oh, exactly, you know, no, I a hundred percent. I absolutely. 
Um, and which is why I said you really have to have put yourself in this situation of someone who's had that experience. Yeah. Uh, and you make a good point. And I'll say just because if anybody listening to all to us talk about this stuff so much piques your interest, um, doing doing psychedelic substances does not guarantee this type of experience. All I'm saying is that it's possible to have it, that it may facilitate it. But it's, I'm not saying everybody, to everybody who takes mushrooms is going to have this type of experience. Um, it helps to be looking for it. It helps to be looking for it, absolutely. Uh, but the idea here is that if, if, if somebody said to, to you that, hey, uh, you know, well, I don't want to beat that bush. All I'm saying here is that there's, I think that there is a reasonable interpretation of this, type, this sentence that, that when you replace Jesus with a mushroom makes as much sense as, as if not more than trying to trying to make it make sense as, as Jesus. So there's that. Um, all right. So he, he goes on to say this, the cultic cry of the Bacchates. Now, the, the god Bacchus was another one of those mystery religions. And this is who he's talking about, the, the followers of Bacchus. Bacchates. This is another another one of these secret mystery religions that that Jesus that early Christianity was thrown in lumped into. And he's saying that the people who were the uh, who followed this mystery religion, that they cried alilu alilu. That this was something that they would say. The the, the worshippers of Bacchus, in their rites, they would say alilu alilu. And he, he says that the the in, this invocation can now be traced back to the Sumerian words that gave the Hebrew the name for their deity Elohim, translated God in our Bibles. So alilu and Elohim are 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 connected etymologically that they're connected and he goes on to say it was a combination of the Sumerian uh, la which means strong water and uh, iau uh, which means the juice of fecundity or the spermatozoa so jizz let's just put it that way Uh, it is precisely this form that that came down in the bible as the chant hallelujah Hallelujah. So, so the thing that the Bach, that the worshippers of Bacchus said, uh, Elilu, Elilu, and the Hebrew saying Hallelujah, have the same origins. That is amazing. That is very interesting. So, um, it, another connection to these mystery religions in Christianity. Yeah. You, you ever heard that? Like, you know, there's all these different words for the Hebrew God in the Bible: yeah. Yahweh, Elohim. Yep. There's other ones too that El, I'm drawing a blank. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the those were originally all separate gods, yeah. The individual gods with their own names, and now that's like used as yeah. I've know. heard I've heard that before, and that that's interesting. That the idea that uh, like let's just say that the people that became the Hebrews that they were originally separate tribes, mm-hmm. and that each of those tribes had their own god, their own tribal god. And that was very normal back then. Um, when those tribes came together, either by marriage or by war, then they would either get rid of their gods or they would incorporate their gods. And that's how, like in Egypt, you have a god called Amun and a god called Ra. And then later on, you have a god called Amun-Ra. It's the same idea that you might have a god that you call El and a god that you call Baal and a god that you call Elohim and a god, you know, and eventually those cultures through marriage or war come together that those gods might actually just become merged together to become one god. Yeah, It's a really interesting idea and I'm sure that it that there's truth in that, that that's, sure. that that's happened. It's interesting. Sidetrack, though. Sidetrack. That's all right. All right, so then here, this is interesting. So I want to talk about mushroom images or psychedelic images in the Old Testament, because he does talk about some of this. So I'm going to separate the, the Jesus stuff. We're going to save that for later. 
Uh, now we're going to talk about this just from the from the idea that, that that there's evidence of psychedelic experiences in the Old Testament. Okay. Do you want to read that, uh, Ezekiel? Yes, sir. Uh, Ezekiel makes much of the cherubim and related chariot imagery to the prophet in some form of the hallucinatory trance. They appear as grotesque apparitions in a storm, surrounded by flashes of lightning and roars of thunder. That's Ezekiel 1, 4, and 24. Uh, they move not only outstretched wings, but with whirling, eye-studded wheels, having in them the spirit of life. Mm. Above their heads is a canopy, and beneath it their wings are spread, two for flying and two to cover their bodies. Uh, the mushroom imagery is here dramatically evident. The prophet sees the Amanita muscaria is its glowing red cap studded with white flakes of the broken pellicle from the vulva. In, in his skin lies the hallucinatory drug, the vulva. Mm. So this is interesting. Um, so here, here's the idea. Anybody who knows the book of Ezekiel, you know what kind of what he's saying here. This is the one where he's describing a crazy, seeing something crazy you know, that he can't explain, and he's trying to explain it. And and this is this 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 vision that Ezekiel has has seen, and and tries to explain. And he's this. And uh, John Mark Allegro is saying, look, re, li, listen to what the guy's saying. If you read it and you and you take him seriously, what he's saying is something that somebody would say if they were tripping. And that's what he says here when he when he says uh, they move not only on on outstretched wings but with whirling eye studded wheels having them having in them the spirit of life. So you're seeing this crazy thing with whirling you know moving wheels and eyes, and and what you take from that is this thing is like possessed by the spirit of life. Like that's a feeling and a thing that you would say if you were a hippie on drugs. Not not something you would say. Or, or maybe it's something you would say about a dream you had, a crazy dream you had. You know what I mean? Like it's that kind of a thing. Yeah. You got anything else? Not really. And then when he talks about the mushroom imagery, he says that, um, he says, uh, when the description is above their heads is a canopy, and beneath it their wings are spread. You can imagine if you were a tiny, shrink yourself down to the size of a little ant, put you, drop you down underneath a mushroom, and you look up, and you're going to see a canopy coming over you, kind of like a tree canopy, but... Then that's what he. That's exactly what he's describing, um, and the wings, um, you know, underneath the mushroom cap, it's got like these gill shapes in it, and he. They're describing it as wings. So there's there's some stuff there that might make you think of the way a mushroom, a, the way a mushroom looks. Um, uh, go go ahead and finish this um, bit here, Kyle. The cult of the mushroom. All right, the cult of the mushroom produced its own cosmography. The vulva of some past primeval fungus split asunder. The lower hemisphere containing the amniotic fluid of creation, the biblical deep, and the upper being forced upwards to make the canopy of heaven. In the Akkadian version of the myth, it is the creator, phallic god Marduk, who splits the vulva asunder. In this case, the vulva is seen as the egg of a mighty serpent called Tiamat, the equivalent of the biblical the biblical Tehom, the subterranean deep, or as its Sumerian or origin implies, womb. Nice. 
So this is interesting. So he, he, when he says that the mushroom cult produced its own cosmography, what he, what he means is that people who worship the mushroom, they have a way of viewing the world, or the cosmos, kind of like a, it's a mushroom. So he's saying that the vulva uh, of some fungus uh, split. And, th- and this, if you see a, a, mush- a mushroom hatching, it's something you can't see with your eyes, but that vulva looks like a little egg. It's like very, very small. And the mushroom, the, the part that shoots up out of it becomes the stem of the mushroom and then eventually the mushroom top that flares open. It kind of looks like an egg from which a penis erupts. Because you've all seen a penis, uh, well, and I assume everyone listening here has seen a penis or two, that, that, you know, you've got the shaft, and then you've got that larger mushroom cap that pops off the top of it to the, to the degree that many people refer to an erect penis as a, as a mushroom That's or a mushroom cap. That's what looks like. <laughs> That's exactly what my mushroom looks like. Okay. So, so there's that. And there's, so there's this image here of, uh, and, and if you remember from the creation stories in the Bible, they say that, you know, the heavens and the earth uh, were separated, and uh, and what he's saying is that, and um, when you look at when you look up at the heavens, that the heavens at night especially, it looks like a canopy, like a canopy of stars. Mm. So if you can imagine the world like that egg, the world that we're that we're existing on Earth like that egg, and the heavens sort of sprouting from it like a mushroom, and the cap of heaven opening up. It, it, oh uh, yeah. So that this is like the picture that they have of this of the world. Like there's mythological image of the of the universe that they see as a mushroom. Not only that, but he's saying that the word that is used in in the Akkadian myth, where the biblical story comes from. That if you look at the words themselves, Marduk is is a, fa- a phallus. He's a penis, and um, dude's a real and, dick. Yep, and that the deep, the subterranean deep, is the womb, and so this is how the story of the creation of the universe of the world is connected to the fertility of you know us having babies and the plants, uh, you know the harvest season and all that's connected to to this idea. And in this case, seeing a, seeing it like a mushroom, like a giant mushroom. It's very interesting. Interesting. All right, so there is some other interesting parallels about Jesus that we'll talk about before we get into the what I think would be the good stuff. Um, so we all know that Jesus is uh, one of the symbols of Jesus, uh, other than the fish, which we talked about already, is a shepherd. So what some of the earliest images of Jesus, by the way, not a bearded guy. Some of the earliest images of Jesus are like a young man, and he's got a sheep around his neck. He's, yeah, hold, he's yeah, holding it over I've his shoulders. That. So the idea of Jesus as a shepherd is a really old image. And here's, here's what, what the quote says. The fertility aspect of divine can be seen in the Sumerian word for shepherd, which appears right across the ancient world in names and epithets. It is sippa, literally stretched horn or penis. So this guy, you know, again, seems to be obsessed with penises, but, uh, but there's a reason for it. So the word for shepherd, sippa, means stretched horn, but it's also like an allusion to a penis. So you can imagine stretched horn. Um, we may now recognize it in the biblical phrase, Yahweh Sabbat, from sippa ud, meaning penis of the storm. So one of the epithets or one of the names for God, if you trace the meaning of the word, it, it really just means penis of the storm. The Sumerian storm god, Iskor, who we already talked about, has a name with a similar meaning, Mighty Penis. You have to start calling me Penis of the Storm. <laughs> penis of, <laughs> Sipa Ud. Kyle, from now on, that's going to be his new Twitter handle, Sipa oh, Ud. Man. 
But again, the, this is the image that comes to my mind, though. Uh, you can imagine the rain falling down from heaven and fertilizing the earth, and then there are plants coming up from the ground. You would imagine that whatever it is that felt falling down from the heavens, this magical stuff that falls on you from the sky, that, that it's like some kind of jizz, it's some kind of sperm that's causing the plants to be born out of the earth because the ground just sucks, sucks, soaks it all in. And then yeah. up from the ground pops what? Stuff you can eat. It's a miracle. So this is what this is why the the idea of fertility and this penis imagery continues to pop up. This is driving the feminists nuts right now. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you do the next one about the magi. Magi. The magi. <clears throat> uh, the magi, the wise men of the gospel birth story. Uh, they were the great drug peddlers of the ancient world and are often cited by Pliny as sources of therapeutic folklore and of the less familiar names of plants and drugs. He treats them with contempt for the most part, but nevertheless quotes them at great length and says that the philosopher Pythagoras, first in his view to compose a book on the properties of plants and his colleague Democritus, visited the Magi of Persia, Arabia, Ethiopia, and Egypt. Yes. So this is interesting. This is interesting because it doesn't really have a direct connection except that the Magi came to the birth of Jesus. So who the heck were the Magi? Now this was the, in my early years, this story was the most interesting story in the entire Bible apart from the creation in the beginning. Yeah. To me, I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? These three wise men, these are, these are like, like holy men, like priests. They come from, they come from a whole other country miles and miles and miles away. They walk on foot, because back then that's how you get there. They walked on foot following a star uh, across desert and hostile territory to come and bring valuable things to this to this baby that's born in the, in some far off, you know, beaten tra- trail that's nothing to these people. They're coming from, the Magi are coming from Persia. And they're they're going to wind up in this tiny village in Palestine in the middle of basically nowhere to them. And uh, they're there to see Jesus born in the story. And there's some supposed to be some significance to that. And this is what always interested me. It's like the Magi were not even Jewish. They were Zoroastrian priests from a different religion coming from a different country to see this, this baby being born. That there's supposed to be a connection there that says Jesus came not just for Jews, but, but Jesus came for everybody, even the, even the, even the Magi. Yeah. Um, and then he's connecting this saying that that the Magi show up in these ancient Greek philosophers, um, you know, like like Pythagoras and Democritus and and, and the Roman. Uh, I think I think Pliny was Roman, but anyway, yeah, that 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 these was. that these Magi show up there as people that were experts on drugs. So there's a connection between Magi and the Jesus story. Mm-hmm. And who were the Magi? They were these like shaman. They were these shaman. Yeah. So there's a connection between these ancient shaman and Jesus, and that's not clear to me or any Christian for that matter, what's the connection there? Um, but if you believe Jesus was a psychedelic mushroom, th- that, that connection's there, buddy. Yep. Interesting. So this is connected here, this one. And this is the idea that of imagining Jesus as a savior. Go ahead. Do you, you think, you know, Jesus was born a ma- in a manger. Uh, in, oh. In a, you know, that's where cows shit. Dude. That's where cows shit. Oh, man, that's, <laughs> that's interesting. Crazy. That is interesting. 
Okay. That's it. That's no, that's it. good. Yeah. So so this one here is is talking about Jesus as a savior, but we would we say Jesus we say that about Jesus, but as Christians, but we say that he's a savior from sin or a savior from death. Yeah. But this is a way of looking at Jesus as a savior from disease. So this is looking at Jesus as a medicine. Now that's not so far fetched when you when you look at the miracles that Jesus did. If I put myself if I put my John Marco hat on, I'm gonna say miracles with quotation fingers. So what did he do? He you know, he cured the leper, he cured the blind and the lame, mm-hmm. you know. That's what medicine does, bro. Yeah, true that. So listen to this. <clears throat> the use of the name Jesus in Greek, uh, Isis, as an invocation for healing was appropriate enough. So he's saying that people, when they were, you know, like back, back in the days when people thought that there was magic and demons and curses, that they would say things to try to heal people. Mm-hmm. And one of the invocations they would say is Isis. That's a word they would say to try to, to try to shoo away the bad juju. And he's saying that that's also the name for Jesus, this, this invocation that used to be said. Yeah. He said it's original, in original Hebrew, it was, um, it was uh, Yoshia, which we would say Joshua. Yoshia or Yashua comes from the Sumerian. So even this word, the, our, our word Joshua, comes from the Sumerian Jaushish Ashu, which means semen, which saves or restores or heals. So the, the healing semen is, the, is another word for Jesus. If, if we follow, if we trace back its its Sumerian origin, he said that word gets Hellenized by the Jews, and, um, or by the Hellenized Jews, so it becomes like a Greek at that point, and it becomes Joshua. So Yeshua becomes Joshua, and in Greek it becomes um, uh, what is it, Asian or Jason? So what, the name we, we would use, and he says Asian means healer, Jason means healer, and it comes from this Sumerian word, uh, which I won't try to pronounce for for the mm-hmm. audience. I think you're doing great with these pronunciations, man. <laughs> he says in the in the New Testament, um, he's well. There's a taunt in the New Testament where Jesus says to a doctor, "Physician, heal thyself." That that's the word he uses. The, the, again, the word that we would maybe call Jason uh, or Jesus. He, Jesus uses that word to mean heal in the same context. Um, he says uh, we probably have a direct allusion in this meaning, as we certainly have in Jesus's life, the word "savior." The first element, which reflects the same Sumerian word "shu," save, and so is rightly used in Greek for saving from disease, harm, or peril, and it's a common epithet, which is like another name for Zeus. So the word "healer," like like saying, um, you know, God, God is a, is a healer. Like we we might call God the healer. Let's say yeah. that that word in Greek, when they were referring to Zeus, is the same word. Uh, that we would we would use as Jason today as a proper name, which goes back to Isis or Jesus. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool. I, it, go, go ahead. ahead. Uh, just the, the last sentence. The fertility god Dionysus, whose cult emblem was the erect phallus, um, for those of you who don't know, phallus means penis, guys. Uh, the fertility god Dionysus, whose cult emblem was the erect phallus, was also a god of healing. And his name, when broken down in its original parts, Aya in Ushish, is almost identical to Jesus. So, the word Jesus might simply mean to heal or be something that was said during a healing ritual. Yeah. And uh, this is just a way of looking at Jesus as medicine or as a savior from disease rather than as a savior from sin the way that we would we would talk about it in the in the in the modern biblical tradition. Yeah. Uh so this is all making me think of I just think 
the way we think of language now, the way we think of words, we just think of them as like a sign, like a verbal sign so that I can express myself to you. Yep. Back then, words had, like you think of um, like a witch or a warlock and they're saying these spells and the spells have like power. These words have power. They do something. And I just think that's interesting. I know that um, like the word Yahweh, um, you know, we've talked about that a little bit already. Um, Like the same root of that is why they name like the the Jewish people in their traditions name like their sons you know Jacob Jacob stuff yeah. like that because like saying those words you're like it's like a protective thing yes. you know what you I know, mean? you're right so you're right yeah like like the in Hebrew all those names that end in L uh, like Michael Uriel Gabriel mm-hmm. that all those words are like the strength of God the will of God it's so, so that their name is supposed to be a blessing to them by yeah. making them the strength of God yeah it's like building like these words have power they do things and it's like I'm gonna build you by naming you yes. w- with this in your name you know well names words and names do have power mm-hmm. and that's something that we don't appreciate enough uh, I in the agree. in the modern day, and you you know this is true every time a politician changes the meaning of a word or invents a new word like woke mm-hmm. and inserts it into the culture and creates all kinds of of, of chaos. Yeah, I think of equity. Oh yeah, words have tremendous power. Yeah, and in ancient in ancient uh, Egypt, they would like they would chip. They would go back and chip the cartouche off of your off of your statues. That was that was your name. So that was one of the things they would do to hurt you in the afterlife. They did that with Akhenaten. Is they would just take a chisel and they would go and just chip off his name off of everything because okay. that's the power of the word. Yeah, that's true. Even in the Bible, man, it's the word that God uses to create the the universe. Mm-hmm. Words are very powerful. Yep. Interesting. All right, read this one, man. About um, this is this is the anti-drug crackdown quote here. All right. Plant mythology, known for thousands of years over the whole of the ancient world, provided the New Testament cryptographers with their cover. Uh, How far it succeeded in deceiving the authorities, Jewish and Roman, is doubtful. Certainly the Roman records speak with loathing of the Christians, and they were hounded with extreme ferocity reserved for political troublemakers within the realm. Exactly. So this this is interesting. So we we so you guys you know the story about um about uh boy I hope I don't get this wrong uh Saint Peter I'm pretty sure he was crucified upside down mm-hmm. and the story there was that Saint Peter he he was being crucified he was being killed because he's a Christian yeah first of all that's the point of the, me telling you this he was in the in the Roman early Roman uh, the early Christian period in Rome in the Roman Empire they were persecuted that means they were killed. And so St. Peter was crucified, and he said he didn't want to die the same way his Savior did because he didn't feel like that was, he was worthy of it. So they flipped him upside down, and he, and he was crucified that way. That's a, that's a badass story already. Yeah. Um, um, but but the, the point is, the early Christians were treated really badly, so badly that they had to, they had to do their, their worship in secret, like we already talked about. They couldn't say they were Christian in public, and they couldn't worship the way they wanted to worship or or anything like that openly. They had to do it all underground and if they were found out, they were they were put in jail and they were killed. So so this is the way this is the way that we treat drug cartels 
Like if like if we see people peddling drugs, we you know uh, are concerned about the damage that's going to have on our youth and our culture and our stability of our society. So we wrap that we we uh, we send out send out the paddy wagons, we slap them in handcuffs, we throw them in jail. That's how we treat people who we think are a threat to our society. Um, that's not how we treat religious people. It's not how we treat group you know a, f- a group of five people having Bible study in the basement. Mm-hmm. So this is this is what he's saying. He's saying. Why is it that the Roman authorities treated Christians like this? Is it because they had a different God? When the Romans had so many gods, you couldn't count them. Yeah. So are we, are we, are we upset about the early Christians, th- so we're going to throw them in jail and kill them because they have a different God? Or because they're doing crazy drugs and they're bringing that shit into my, into my, you know, my village? And, yeah. You know? yeah, I mean, I do have a hard time thinking of it like as a direct comparison because... Well, I don't know. I guess it is a good direct comparison because it's not necessarily just the drugs, you know? Like, you know, I'm sure they had drugs. They they drank wine back in Rome. Right. So they had drugs that they were okay with. Um, but it's what comes with the drugs, I think, is what they're banning. You know, the reason that they're, yeah. you know. Well that's, well, that's true. I mean, a, a drug culture has the potential to, to disrupt well, I should say a drug, a psychedelic drug, has the potential to disrupt the culture. Sure. That's why Tim- Timothy Leary was put in jail for a lifetime. And, uh, you know, it's it's out of fear that what they're doing is going to be disruptive to the, to the status quo. Um, could a new religion do that? Yes. Um, is that, but at this point in time, is that likely the reason why they were being persecuted? I think there's a good argument to be made that maybe not. Because here you have a fringe religion. That would be like me getting upset about, um, I can't even think of a good example. Because you've got the Roman state religion that's, that's been the Roman religion for thousands of years. Um, and this Roman empire that stretches across the entire world with all of this power and might. And their religion is, well at this point it's basically the Caesar. But they have this ancient pantheon that, that's established that's all over their culture and their stories and it's important. And here comes this little tiny fringe cult, basically, that has a tiny percentage of the population that are that are you know following it. You're are you going to look at that as a threat? I mean, boy, I have a hard time thinking I would look at as as Caesar that I'm going to look at that as much of a threat. But if they were bringing in these unheard of drugs, and people were saying when they when they have this drug experience that. Caesar's not God because I, 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 because I was God yesterday evening. Yeah. You know, that might be disruptive enough to make me want to kill all of them if I'm Caesar. So this is, I think, the argument he's making. Why were they mistreated so badly by the Roman authorities if they were, if they were just these peaceful, uh, tiny little group of, you know, never hurt anybody, do, doing my worship in secret people that's interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Anything on that? Nope, nothing, nothing other than that. <clears throat> All right, so there's a stretch here that I think is super important, and it's going to lead us right into the I think I think the best evidence about uh, that John uh, John Marco Allegro brings. But before we get to that, this to me surprised me, and I thought was even more interesting. And this is this is talking about psychedelic experiences as a part of the force that caused monotheism to come about. So the idea that in ancient times, people worshipped all these different gods, it was very normal, it was everywhere like that, and then all of a sudden there was this m- movement 
to, to consolidate gods into one. And it was a revolutionary movement. You know, prior to the Jews, there's nobody, except for maybe a brief period in Egypt under Akhenaten, nobody that worshipped one god. So he's going to bring some, some evidence to the table that said the psychedelic experiences from these mushrooms might have had something to do with it. So here we go. He says, If we are to make any enlightened guess at primitive man's ideas about God and the universe, it would have to be on the reasonable assumption that they would be simple and directly related to the world of his experience. So that's interesting. He's just saying, hey, if we had to guess about what early the earliest religion was like, it was probably simple and it was related directly to our experiences. And he goes on to say, he may have given the God numerous epithets, which is just names. An epithet is like call is like you might call God by a, by a proper name like Elohim, but but you might also call God the bringer of rain or the mother of dragons if you're a, sure. if you're a Game of Thrones fan. That's an epithet. It's it's a, you're you're using it like a proper name, but it really gives a characteristic or property to uh to the person. Penis of the storm. Penis of the storm. All right, so he may have given the God numerous epithets describing his various functions and manifestations, but there is no reason to doubt that the reality behind the names was envisioned as one all-powerful deity, a life-giver, supreme creator. I think that's really interesting. Um, There's a lot more here, but basically what he's saying here is if you had a God like that... um, the mighty penis of the storm that you believed was responsible for the birth of uh, the creation of the cosmos and the birth of everything that come, all the life that continu- continues to just flow out of us and, and the earth. All of that is, you know, this God, this, this reason this, that's responsible for it. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I love this thing. It's responsible for my existence. It's responsible for all, you know, everything that, that, that is in my, my world. Um, so, so I might call it, you know, the great, so this this God who I who I call Yahweh, maybe I also call him the Great One, or the the Great Creator, or the you know the the mighty penis of the storm, or the bringer of bringer of food and the bringer of shelter and the whatever it is. All of these names that I come up with, all these epithets that I'm calling him, you can imagine that they might, under different circumstances, become seen as different gods. Yeah. So so it's like exactly what we were talking exactly. about. Exactly. That's crazy. So if I if I called God a god, but I also called him penis of the storm and then and then my tribe splits off and one goes one way and one goes the other and I call God god over over here on this tribe and I call him penis of the storm, after enough time and distance has gone by and we we come back together, these two tribes. We no longer recognize that those are the same god. Now you worship the god of the storm, and I worship the you know the, the uh, you you worship the penis of the storm, yeah, yeah, and I and I worship right, God buddy. over here, so that uh, so so that this might actually be the explanation for why classical religions have so many gods in them. That's interesting. The, it's they're, very cool. They're, they actually all just melt back to this original god, mm-hmm. and there's different names for them, cool. which I think is amazing. And the, this is something I, I wanted to bring up, and it. it it's tied to this guy that I was fascinated with forever, a guy named Wilhelm Schmidt, who was a Catholic priest um, in the, uh, you know, like, you know, basically the, ter- the t- turn of the century, more or less, so in g- going in, you know, t- prior to the Second World War. German was feller? German feller, yeah. And, uh, and he, he basically made this same argument. And, yeah. it was, and I always thought it was interesting. And, and he gave a lot of detail about how these ancient 
religions. He called them the uh, ethnologically oldest cultures, and he identified them like these cultures in um, these these ancient uh, uh, tribes in certain parts of uh, Australia and certain parts of California and uh, an island uh, Tierra del Fuego down in South America. Um, that that these cultures shared the most ancient style of culture and the most ancient style of religion and if you and if you look at what they believe they believe in a high god they believe in a creator god who's basically top dog and if they have any other gods some and some of them don't but if they have any other gods or spirits they're they're seen as underneath the main the main guy so that his argument is that religion was always uh, a monotheistic idea from from the very beginning, okay. and it became this mini god stuff that that it became, and he's and John Marco Allegro was making the same argument. I just th- thought that was really interesting. That is interesting. All right, so he goes on to say the etymological examination of the chief god names supports this view, pointing to a common theme of life giving fecundity, which is just another way of saying fertility. I like that word fecundity. Uh, yep. Uh, <laughs> So that that's a word. It, it also means like potent. It means like uh, like for instance, I had a vasectomy, so I don't feel like I've got fecundity anymore. I would say that I'm not 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 effective anymore. All right. So it says uh, it says thus the principal gods of the Greeks and Hebrews, Zeus and Yahweh, have names derived from the Sumerian meaning juice of fecundity. So juice of fertility. You know, you guys know what that means, or seed of life. The phrase is composed of two syllables, aya, and you and you that would also be pronounced ya or za. So za for Zeus, ya for Yahweh. That's the answer to the question we had earlier. Literally means strong water. So you you, you take that word that that syllable, aya, strong water, and you add you to it, the syllable you. And he says perhaps the most important um, <clears throat> phoneme in the whole of the of Near Eastern religions this this word u. Uh, it is found in the text presented by a number of different cuneiform signs, but the root of them all is the idea of, fer- <coughs> of fertility. Thus, one u means copulate, another meaning means create, and in another uh, context it means rainstorm. So this this u, I don't know how it's pronounced, u or u, it's just one letter, that it means basically sex, create, and rainstorm, which does what? Creates plants. Yeah. So you've got... You've got uh, Strong water plus this word, um, this word you that means create. So, so those together are the root of Zeus and Yahweh. Strong water that creates, hmm. strong water that creates, something like that. All right, it says, um, it says, thus, uh, one you means copulate, another means create, another means rainstorm, as a source of heavenly sperm, another another it means vegetation, and as the offspring of the gods, so seeing vegetation as the offspring of the gods, um, whilst another you is the name for the storm god himself. <coughs> so far from evincing a multiplicity of gods, our earliest records lead us back to a single idea, even a single letter, you. Behind Judaism and Christianity, and indeed all the Near Eastern fertility religions, there lies a single phoneme, you. <coughs> so he's basically saying that, that, that the God that, that 
is at the heart of the Christian and Jewish religion is the same God at the heart of all of these ancient Near Eastern religions. So he's basically saying, look, I'm going to take this argument all the way back to the beginning and say that as far back as we can go, these fertility gods um, are all the same God. And all of them, all of them have to do with psychedelic um, experience. That's a mighty interesting thing to say. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to keep pushing through here, just, just this section. So he says, summarizing then, we should not look for a multiplicity of gods in the ancient world, but rather many aspects of the one deity of fertility, the creative force that gives earth and its creatures life. The god was the seed, his name and functions finding verbal expression in the one Sumerian phoneme, you. The god expressed his seed from heaven as, as a mighty penis ejaculating sperm at orgasm. It entered the womb of Mother Earth, the furrows of the land, and formed a great reservoir of potency in the heart of the world. There, gestation took place in the furnace of the terrestrial uterus. There, too, was thought to be the source of all knowledge, since the creative semen of God was also the Word. It followed that those plants which were able to tap this power of knowledge to a greater degree than others, the source of hallucinatory drugs, would impart to those who, Im- who imbibe their juice knowledge of the gods. So, so he's, he's basically saying that the rain that falls and, and fertilizes the earth, that that seemed to be God's jizz. That it, it, you can see this, you know, especially if you're a desert people, and these people, a lot, a lot of them were desert people. When it rains, the earth just soaks it up, and the water just kind of goes away. That they imagine that all of this god sperm that's coming, falling down from the sky, that causes the, you know things to, to food to grow, that it's just accumulating at the heart in the heart of the earth. The earth is just filled with this god magic, this just god jizz. It's just a big pool of god jizz in the middle of the earth. And that's what everything gives life to everything that bursts out of the out of the out of the dirt. Yeah. It's amazing. Tell you what, I'm getting a fucking umbrella when I leave here. <laughs> uh, and then and then he's saying, look, you got this potent juice just just, you know, building up in the earth. And certain plants pull some of that juice out, and maybe more than others. And if you eat those plants, that you get knowledge of the gods. And that's why in that fresco from the 13th century, the tree of knowledge was a mushroom. Cool. Cool, man. All right, here's the last bit. Since all life derives from the divine seed, it follows that the most powerful healing drug would be the pure, unadulterated semen of God. Some plants were thought to have sap or resin approximating to this. Their purity or sanctity in this regard being measured by their power as drugs to kill or cure or intoxicate. In the Sumerian, the words for life and intoxicate are the same. Tin. And the tree of life, just tin, is the vine. So that even the tree of life has the word for the tree of life, just tin, has this word which means intoxicate in it. So mm. the tree of life is something that gives life, but it also perhaps intoxicates. And then he says, similarly, in the Greek, uh, amos, and in the Hebrew, yayin, is a word for wine, there's probably a common Sumerian root, aya, aya unu, which means semen or seed. Pretty cool. All right. What do you think of that, man? Anything else? Um, not really. I, I think, uh, I definitely think it's interesting. Um, 
like I said, I can't remember if I said this before we started recording or during, but I just love the the language uh, aspect of it. You know what I mean? Yes. The break, that it's all basically based on language. It, that's it's cool. Super interesting. It is cool. It is. I, I've probably used this example before, but one of the things when I was learning about the Proto-Indo-European language and its connections to religion, um, that one of the words that we use in English, bring, I've told you this before, oh, I yeah, know. Yeah. The word bring comes from, well, it, it has a long history of where it comes from, but if you go all the way back to the, as early as we can, it comes from these Proto-Indo-European language, and it, the word is basically two words. Uh, bear, which they spell B-H-R, but some, something that sounded like burr or bear, and that word is something like to carry. And then we use that in English, like to bear arms, means to, to carry arms, to have guns. Um, so there's a word bear, and then there's a word ink. And ink means like to, to, to take something from one place to another. So to bear means to, to pick something up and hold it. And to ink means to take it someplace. So if I bring, if I bearing, if I bear ink, bear ink, bring something somewhere, it's to pick it up and to carry it somewhere. And to understand that, that that's where the, the word bring comes from, I just wonder how much more like that there is and how much m- more rich and interesting it makes language. Like, yeah. it's, it's probably endless. You know, we did that episode last week about, like, my criticisms of science. Uh, and I think that maybe I can be a little hypocritical because I'll, I'll criticize things like... Um, like the fossils of the dinosaurs like i said before i think on the podcast that you know they find this little tiny bone this little tiny bone and then they like they just like in my mind they just (laughs) imagine that it's like the little tiny toe bone of this giant dinosaur it's like well maybe not but um but i i will put a lot of faith into this like language science like i really uh, but i mean i think it's because i can like see it you know like i can you know, it, I, it makes I, more sense. I do think there's a lot more imagination in that type of science than uh, than people believe. Like, sure. like you said, if they they find a tiny little, like they did, a tiny little pinky bone in a apothecary shop in China, yeah, and from that they figured out there's a whole a whole other species of humans called Denisovans that we never knew about that existed in Siberia and in part in all parts of you know, Southeast Asia, and uh, they died out, went extinct, yeah. and we were able to tell you all of this and recreate the whole body of the thing by a little pinky bone. And if you question it, you're a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't even question it. I think that, like, I, I appreciate that evidence, but, um, you know, yeah, I don't know. I, I like Graham Hancock, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. All right, so this last, this last bit that we'll get through, I think I... As far as I'm concerned, is the strongest evidence. The virgin self. Yeah. Well, hold on. Before you start reading that, okay. Tell me, tell me, what do you think the most important things about Jesus? Like, from from a Christian, from a um, you know, like a, I don't want to say conservative, but like a Bible believing Christian, um, you ask them. What are the most important parts of Jesus's life and, and existence that leads you to believe that Jesus is God? Because that's the, at the heart of the Christian religion. So what about Jesus is the best evidence that he's God? Like, like what would you tell me? Um, I guess I would point to the miracles. The miracles? I would point to... What was the first miracle of Jesus's life? I do not remember. Well, how about the fact that he, his, his mom was 
was impregnated without oh, having yeah, sex. Oh yeah, yeah, the ma- immaculate conception. Right. So the virgin birth—that's one piece of piece of evidence that Jesus is not like everybody else. He he was born of a virgin. Okay, what, what else? Um, more miracles, you know, magic tricks. Yep, miracles for sure. Uh, ra- arising from the dead, raising people from the dead. There you go. Yeah. Now, conquering death, that's, that's the piece of evidence that uh, most people would say is the f- evidence that, God, that Jesus is God. Yeah. He's the God-man because he was the creature like cr- other creatures on earth, but had the power that none, that none other had, which is to conquer death. And this is the idea. So these are all things that John Marco Allegro attributes to the, to the mushroom. So let's, let's get into it. Do you want to go first? Sure. The virgin birth. The mushroom has always been a thing of mystery. The ancients were puzzled by its manner of growth without seed. The speed with which it made its appearance after rain and its rapid disappearance. Uh, Born from a vulva or egg, it appears like a small penis, raising itself like the human organ sexually aroused. And when when it spread wide its canopy, the old botanist saw it as a phallus. Every aspect of the mushroom's existence was fraught with sexual illusions, and its phallic form, the ancients saw a replica of the fertility god himself. It was the son of God. Its drug was a pure form of God's own... Sorry, I just switched pages here. Of God's own spermatozoa. That... Sorry. That that the discuss. Of God's own spermatozoa than that discoverable in any other form of living matter. It was, in fact, God himself manifest on earth. To the mystic, it was the divinely given means of entering heaven. God had come down in the flesh to show the way to himself. Yeah, in, yeah, in, interesting. So, all right, so when he says that the mushroom, um, that it, that it, grows without seed and that it starts from this vulva which which looks like an egg and it shoots out like a like a penis so that's what it looks like it shoots out like a penis from an egg that what you have basically is um the male and the female in one thing right you've got this egg that's typically separated from the from the sperm by a you know biology by by one being in the woman and one being in the man but in the mushroom you have something that looks to them like one thing that contains both the egg and the and the penis so it's it's like a it's like it's self-created mm-hmm. and that's what god is god is the thing that wasn't created so they saw the mushroom as a vir, a bir, of a virgin birth that the mushroom is born from itself that's cool and that's really interesting and he, he, that's why he says it's called the son of god because it's it's born from itself it's born from god let's say and then he and then he says that, um, and then he says here um, to the mystic, it was it was the divinely given means of entering heaven. God had come down in the flesh to show Himself the way. Holy crap! I I'm, I love that. So first of all, in in the Christian language, we say that God uh, became flesh. We say that. And we also already talked about the fact that mushrooms have flesh, that the body of a mushroom, we also use that word. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's not like a vegetable. It's like flesh. You know, it's something like that. So God had come down in the flesh. Um, you can see a mushroom being born from itself like that, like God coming down 
uh, into the flesh, into the flesh of the mushroom, um, to show himself the way. So you've got, you've got, you've got God emerging as a mushroom so that I can eat it, let's say, and show myself the way and to, to reveal some truth about God that I can only get through the mushroom. Something like that. That that's the way I interpret that. Yeah. What do you think? Um, that's pretty cool. I I think that um, I don't. I just again the the language theme that runs all the way through this. I love the the flesh of the mushroom. Right. Um, that's just cool. I, I don't know. So there's a little bit more here to this uh, virgin birth, but that's the really that's the the the, the crux of the image. But uh, he goes on to say. It was the fertilization of the womb that most puzzled the ancients and remained a mystery until the end of the last century. So we we didn't figure out how mushrooms did that until recently. It says, uh, to Pliny, the fungus had to be reckoned as one of the greatest of the marvels of nature, since it belonged to a class of things that springs up spontaneously and cannot be grown from seed. So we talked about that already, but so it's been a mystery that we've recognized for a very long time. Um... And then, uh, you want to read this one? One explanation? Kyle, right here. That's all right, I'll read it here. One explanation of the creation of the mushroom without apparent seed was that the womb had been fertilized by thunder, since it was commonly observed that the fungi appeared after thunderstorms. Thus, one name given them was Karunian, from the Greek Karunios, thunderbolt. Another was the Greek Hudnan, probably derived from the Su- Sumerian Udnun, storm-seeded. It was thus uniquely begotten. The normal process of fruitification had been bypassed. The god had spoken, and his creative word had been carried to earth by the storm wind, angelic messenger of heaven, and been implanted directly into the vulva. The baby that resulted from this divine union was thus the son of God, more truly representative of its heavenly father than any other form of plant or animal life. Mm. That's interesting. And it's, it's, it is interesting. I mean, if you've ever seen mushrooms pop up, um, they will very often do it after a storm. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they seem to come out of nowhere. And, so, and sometimes they, they get so big yeah. overnight, you couldn't believe it. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, I mean it's it it's unbelievable, and, and the idea that that when it rains like that and the conditions are right for these mushrooms to to uh, to pop out of the ground, that they called them that they called them storm seeded, and they thought that the sound of the thunder had something to do with bringing them up out of the out of the ground. It's cool. It's amazing. It's amazing. Um, and then and then talking about that uh, that God like the thunder was somehow like coming from God like the the voice of God let's say you've heard that before the thunderclap you know God, Zeus was the god of thunder yep. so that the that it was that voice of God that was the creative word that's referred to in the Bible the the, the logos that that was that God uses to create the cosmos so that it's just interesting and then the the last bit of this says. Um, in the, phall- um, in the phallic mushroom, the child born of the virgin womb, we have the reality behind the, the Christ figure of the New Testament story. <coughs> by imitating the mushroom, as well as by eating its juice or blood, the Christian was taking into himself the panoply of his God, as the priest in the sanctuary also anointed themselves with the God's spermatozoa, found in the juices and resins of the special tree- plants and trees. 
As the priests served the God in the temple, so the Christians worshipped their God by mystically involved, excuse me, worshipped their God and mystically involved themselves in the creative process. In the language of the mystery cults, they sought to be born again. When, when purged afresh of past sins, they could apprehend the God in a drug-induced ecstasy. So even this idea of being born again, which if you've ever done a, a, a psychedelic, uh, if you've ever had a psychedelic mystic experience, you, you know exactly what they mean by that, by opening up your eyes, coming to, and not being the same person you were before. Mm-hmm. All right, so I think that's a pretty good summary of the idea of the mushroom as a, as a virgin bur- uh, born. Um, you, want, you want to jump on the next, the next topic here, this uh, dying and resurrecting idea? Sure. A great deal of the mythology of the ancient Near East hinges on the theme of dying and rising God, of Ada, of the dying and rising God. It is usually seen as symbolism in story form of the processes of nature whereby in the heat of the summer the earth's greenness disappears in death to reappear the following spring in new birth. But as we shall see the life cycle of the mushroom, this natural in the life cycle of the mushroom, this natural cycle was quickened to a matter of days or even hours. The fungus of a microcosm of the whole fert- the fungus was a microcosm of the whole fertility process. The essence of God compressed into the womb and penis of the hermaphrodite mushroom. Yes. The womb and the penis in in the hermaphrodite mushroom, and that's interesting because even uh, like like in ancient Greece, they believed that like the Adam and Eve in the ancient Greece story was a um, hermaphroditic person. So they believed that human beings used to be both both male and female together, and that the fall of of like the 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 fall of uh, man that we see in the Bible story where Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden in the Greek version the hermaphrodite gets split into man and woman. It used to be one thing, and, and that's a part of, the, part of the mystery of the marriage ceremony and the, why it is the way it is all across cultures and religions that the unifying of male and female together is a, is a mystical and spiritual thing. This is kind of what it sur- surrounds, this, this idea of the self-created. It's interesting, man. It is. All right, so uh, he, in, during this this dying and resurrecting theme, he also says that the drug contained under the skin of the sacred fungus uh, give to the initiate at will the illusion of spiritual resurrection, of victory over death. So this is just an idea of anybody who's had a mystic experience, like I said, and opens up their eyes having come down from it, um, they awake a different person than they went into the experience. And so there definitely is this idea of being reborn that's a part of that mystic, that mystic experience. And the last bit of this where he says, the death and resurrection story of Jesus follows the traditional pattern of fertility mythology, as has long been recognized. The hero is miraculously born, dies violently, returns to the underworld, and is then reawakened to life. So this story here he's saying you see a myth all over the place, not just in the Christian story. And that what that story is of is the story of, of the mushroom. Hmm. All right. And then the last little bit is tr- understanding God as man. And I think that because Jesus is the God-man, then that's, that's the cherry on top. Uh, you want to take that one? Sure. To the mystic, the little red-topped fungus must have seemed human in form and yet divine in its power to change men and give them an insight into the mysteries of the universe. 
It was in the world, but not of it. In the New Testament myth, the writers tried to express this idea of duality of nature by portraying as its central character a man who appeared human enough on the surface, but through whom there shone a godlike quality which manifested itself in miracle-working and uniquely authoritative attitude to the law. Mm. Interesting. And a uniquely authoritative attitude to the law. What does that mean? Well, you, you remember how Jesus was like overthrowing the money changers tables yeah. in the temple and he was like, supposedly when he was a kid, he was like preaching to the rabbis so that, that there was something there that said uh, it was evidence of Jesus' godhood that he understood the laws of God so thoroughly that he could even talk gotcha. circles around the rabbis gotcha. um, and that that kind of authority, that kind of certainty about the laws of God, that you can have that certainty when you have a mystic experience. I don't know that you can have that certainty any other way. Any other way, you're just guessing. But somebody who's had that experience can talk with firm certainty about what, what God is because you've become God. So something like that. All right. So I wanted to add to this, Kyle, that there was a book. I told you that, that the evidence that he puts up for this, this mushroom symbolism in Christianity when he shows me a picture from a 13th century, you know, chapel in France, like that's, that's interesting. Like you said, it's an interesting coincidence, but I don't know that it's much more. And he, he didn't have a lot of other evidence that he could point to. Um, but there's since this book has been written, there's been some other evidence that came out that supports this. And so I did see an article that was published in 2008, uh, or a book rather, uh, by a guy named Jan Irvin. It's called uh, The Holy Mushroom, Evidence of Mushrooms in Judeo-Christianity. Um, and this was the first book since John Marco's book in 1970 to bring any support for his theories. Uh, it includes a 16th century Christian text called The Epistle of the Renegade Bishops, which sounds like something you should like. The <laughs> Epistle of the Renegade Bishops. And it explicitly mentions and discusses, quote, the holy mushroom. So this is a Christian text from the Middle Ages that specifically talks about the holy mushroom. Okay, that plus dozens of new images that support John Marco's theories, which weren't available in 1970 when, it, when they were published. So a bunch of other art, uh, religious art, and uh, stuff that, that uh, is evidence of mushrooms in that context. Got it. Also, Paul Stamets. Uh, he talked about um, psychedelic mushrooms as the only substance known to cause neurogenesis. That's cool. The only substance that can bring brain cells back to life. That's right. Like resurrecting them from the dead, Kyle. Mushrooms. Mushrooms. Get in on it. Well, anything you want to add to that? No, not really. I think uh, that was in a, that was all pretty pretty interesting. I had not heard. A, a lot of that as in detail, you know. Like Me either. You, you read the whole book? I no, not, no, I didn't read the whole book, but I perused it. Gotcha. Um, I just did it enough to get enough, um, enough uh, co context and quotes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I did not read it, read the whole thing. But I did get um, the picture. It's it's yeah. thoroughly researched. It's complicated, and this was the best I could do to simplify it for for everybody. That's cool, man. I that was that was interesting. All right, well, I'm going to end you guys with this. Um, the first chapter of Ezekiel, the crazy trip that John Marco was talking about. He said, hey, don't, don't read this as a vision that Ezekiel is getting from God. 
read this as Ezekiel seeing God when he's having this sort of mystic experience, this mushroom experience. So I'm going to read this to you in closing, and I'd like you to just put yourself in that frame of mind. Imagine that you just ate a big old bag of mushrooms. It's been about 45 minutes. You're scared. Your, your palms are getting sweaty. You're not sure what to, what to expect. Your vision starts to dim a little bit. Then all of a sudden, your vision, your visual acuity becomes crazy good. The colors start to pop. Shadows start to look amazing. Something's happening. You can feel it, but you don't quite know what's going on. And then bam, the word of the Lord came expressly into Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi in the land of the Chaldeans by the, by the river Chabar. And the hand of the Lord was there upon him. And I looked and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself and a brightness was about it and out of the midst thereof as the color of amber out of the midst of the fire also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four creatures and this was their appearance they had the likeness of a man and everyone had four faces and everyone had four wings and their feet were straight feet and the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot and they sparkled like the color of burnished brass. And they had the hands of a man under their wings, under the four sides, and the, and the four they had faces in their wings, and their wings were joined to one another. They turned not when they went. They went every one straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, they had four, the face of a man, the face of a lion on the right side, and the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces and their wings were stretched upward. Two wings of every one were joined, one to another, and two covered their bodies. And they went every one straight forward, whether their spirit was to go. They went and they turned not when they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire and like the appearance of lamps. It went up and down among the living creatures and the fire was bright. And out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I beheld the living creatures, behold, one wheel upon the earth by the living creatures and his four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their work was likened to the color of beryl. And they had four, one had, had one likeness. And their appearance and their work was as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, they went upon their four sides, and they turned not when they went. As for their rings, they were so high that they were dreadful, and their rings were full of eyes around them four. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went by them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Whithersoever the spirit was to go, they went. Thither was their spirit to go. And the wheels were lifted up over against them, for the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels." When those went, these went. When those stood, these stood. And when those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up over against them. For the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. And in the likeness of the firmament upon the heads of the living creatures was the color of the terrible crystal stretched forth over, over their heads above. And under the firmament were their wings straight the one towards the other. Every one had two, which covered this side, and the other had two, which covered that side, their bodies. 
And when they went, I heard the noise of their wings like the noise of great waters, as the voice of the Almighty, the voice of speech, as the noise of a host. When they stood, they let down their wings, and there was a voice from the firmament that was over their heads when they stood and had let their wings down. And above the firmament, there was over their heads like the likeness of a throne and the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne, there was the likeness as the appearance of a man upon it. And I saw as the color of amber and as the appearance of fire round about within it, from the appearance of his loins even upward and from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw it as it were the appearance of fire and it had brightness about it as the appearance of the bow that in the cloud as in the day of rain, so the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance and the likeness of glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face and I heard a voice that spake. And he said unto me, son of man, stand upon thy feet and I will speak to thee. And there the spirit entered into me and he spake unto me and set me upon my feet that I heard him that spake unto me. And he said unto me, Son of man, I see thee as the children of Israel to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They and their fathers had transgressed against me even unto this very day. For they are impudent children and stiff-hearted. I do send thee unto them, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work. Thinking, it's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.